Hello, Simon here. Um, you're about to hear an announcement that we recorded um, after the main recording of this week's show. Um, and that's because there was um, a bit of news that came through after we finished recording to say that the photography show in the UK, um, which is going to be happening this coming weekend over four days, and there's going to be an analogue spotlight, and it was going to be really, really interesting, has been postponed. And uh, you'll get more details uh, on that. Now, in the, this, in the announcement that you're about to hear, we talk about an event that's going to happen at Hamish's uh, co-working space called The Kiln in Worcester. And within that conversation, we were talking about that event happening on Saturday, which is the same day as the main uh, annual get-together, if you like, that was being organised uh, by the Sunday 16 podcast. Now, that event was going to be on the 14th of uh, of this month, the 14th of March on the Saturday. And we've now realised that uh, the rescheduling, rescheduling that's going to happen now at uh, Hamish's The Kiln in Worcester um, can't happen on the Saturday, uh, but we're going to make it happen. I say we, Hamish is going to make it happen on the Sunday. So that's Sunday the 15th. Uh, the times are still the same. We're still saying 11 o'clock till late. Uh, that's 11 o'clock in the morning, by the way. Um, so everything else we say, uh, hopefully, is still accurate. But uh, um, things may be subject to change. But uh, you'll hear more details about that uh, very, very shortly. So thank you. Hello. The show hasn't quite started yet. Um, that's because something happened uh, whilst we were recording the show um, and that is by the time the recording finished uh, we talk a lot about the photography show that's happened in Birmingham in the UK at the NEC uh, which is one of the largest uh, photography events and this year is going to be particularly exciting because uh, and I'm using now using the word was uh, going to be something called the analog spotlight there and that's where there was going to be a dedicated gathering of um, analog based photography companies and uh, much of that work in fact the inspiration for that work uh, for the idea of it and uh, execution uh, came from Hamish Gill who you're going to hear is a guest uh, on today's show and Hamish is back with me now because um, th this is before I've just all, sort of half finished the editing to the show and uh, and this news has come in and I'm thinking well we talk a bit about this this show and and what we say on the show now is inaccurate. So, um, Hamish, we have, I say we, um, you have plans for an alternative now because the, the show's been cancelled because of the coronavirus outbreak. Um, but we're going to try and do something on a much smaller scale in, the, in um, beforehand. Yes. So uh, on the same yeah. day, I should say. So uh, take it away, yeah. Hamish. Yes. Well, let's hope that 55,000 people don't turn up at the kiln in Worcester because that would be... Um, difficult to handle but yes yeah, so obviously uh, the 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 show the the photography show has been cancelled because of some of the larger exhibitors um we believe some of the large exhibitors have been have been pulling out so they've the, the show has had no choice to uh, to cancel or postpone until um september they're saying this year so because obviously lots of people are becoming in the general direction of um, Birmingham. I'm in Worcester, which is uh, sort of 25 miles, maybe a bit more than that, but not much down the road. Uh, and I have a space in Worcester called The Kiln, which is a co-working space, um, which is available for us to gather uh, on Saturday 
uh, as an alternative to the photography show. So we are having the analog spotlight at the kiln uh, in Worcester on Saturday <laughs> from 11 until when we're done. Um, there's two pubs over the road, so it can, you know, we can go there as well. <laughs> Um, and yeah, and we've got a whole load of the exhibitors. We've all kind of had an emergency Facebook chat thing, uh, and a whole load of the people who were going to be exhibiting at TPS are now going to bring their various wares to to the kiln. So we've got. I've got the list. Full you go list, the list. <laughs> um, so uh, we've got. In, this is in no particular order. Uh, we have Intrepid, uh, Chroma. Uh, so that's, well, actually, let's just go explain a bit, a bit more. Intrepid are a large format uh, camera company, uh, and Max. Everybody's going to know that. Well, this is the Classic Lenses podcast, you see, so not slightly different audience, but hopefully yeah, lots okay. of people will know. So, um, so that's a, a a modern large format camera, lightweight large format camera that, that's very affordable. And also, there's uh, Steve Lloyd from the Chroma Camera Company, um, also with a large format camera that's very affordable. Um, so, uh, Steve and um, Intrepid will be there. Chroma and Intrepid. Um, we have all of the Sunday 16 podcast. Uh, so that's uh, Graham, Aid, and Rachel are going to be there. And they were planning on doing a live broadcast uh, or podcast Hello. after the show. Um, and that's now going to happen at the kiln in Worcester. Um, so uh, so please come along for that. Um, we also have Analog Wonderland. So Paul from Analog Wonderland is going to be bringing lots of film with him. Uh, so that's good. And we also got coming over from Finland. We've got you. Is it Yuho? You, Yuho? from uh, Yuho. Yuho that's it um from camera rescue um and uh, they the people that have so far rescued and fixed and sent on to new customers about 60 odd thousand uh cameras and lenses and things like that so uh um they were they're going to have quite a big presence at the um at the show and uh, so they they're going to bring their presence as as much as they can do and fit it and cram it into the kiln and i think they're actually going to be doing some filming there as well because they've got a they've effectively got a, a, a youtube channel is that is that right i think they've got a youtube channel yeah yeah they're going to be creating some content Exactly. So, um, yeah, so lots of things already happening and I would expect uh, those numbers are going to increase. And I'm, I'm now thinking about uh, going into consultation with you about taking uh, my range of lens caps um, and taking space there and showcasing my lens caps as well. So I might be taking advantage of this. Might, <laughs> I may have actually planned all, like this all along. <laughs> it's all my plan coming together. Um, so, yeah, so we've got uh, quite a few people and I'm sure there are going to be more people coming along. So when we talk about it later, uh, it's all shifted now to Worcester um, on the same day, on uh, Saturday the 14th from 11 o'clock till late at uh, at the kiln, uh, which is right in the centre of uh, Worcester. Is there any other kind of di directions you might want to add to that, uh, Hamish? Uh, well, yeah. So anybody who's driving, you if you park in Copenhagen Street car park in Worcester, it's about 200 yards up the road. Just walk in the opposite direction to the river towards town. It's on the left-hand side in the old police station. Uh, if you're coming on the train, you can get off at uh, Fourgate Street or Shrub Hill train station. Um, and yeah, it's at the opposite end of the high street to Fourgate Street and just into town from uh, from Shrub Hill. Uh, okay. Just search the kiln on Google, uh, Worcester, you'll find it. Excellent. And uh, finally, um, information uh, we're going to put out there via a single source. And that's <coughs> going to be your website, isn't it? 35mmc.com. 
Yeah, I'm going to put a blog post out with some details about this a bit later on today. That's it. So uh, that I, I assume you're going to keep on up- updating that. Is that going to be like almost like a you're going to have an addendum going on, running and things like that? I don't know if you, I know you haven't thought that far, but I'm just wondering about extra information and stuff. So, sounds like that's what's going to happen now. You've said it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what a great idea that was. Yeah. So, well done. Okay. So um, let's unless you've got anything else, shall we? Shall we finish it there? Because I know you've got quite a bit to do now. Yes. Um, not least, get my children to bed. Um, so it's my children that made me end the pod, dip out of the podcast earlier on, and now it's my children that I need to go and get in bed. And my wife's just got back as well; she's going to bother me because I haven't done anything right. I've got to go. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Well, uh, th- thanks for that, and uh, enjoy the show. From Hong Kong, Chicago, and the city of Stoke-on-Trent, this is the Classic Lenses Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 109. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Johnny Sisson and Perry G. Hello, Johnny. Hello. And hello, Perry. Hello. Happy Global Meltdown Day. Oh, dear. Dear. We st- when we started this episode, the S&P 500 was at 2,863. At the end of this episode, we'll check in again. <laughs> so this is the great thing about owning no stocks and having no retirement account. I could give a flying f- glass. <laughs> uh, before before we start, too, uh, riddle me this, gentlemen: How many grown ass men does it take to figure out what time it is on the East Coast? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's a ve- it's a very good question, and uh, I still we still have no answer to answer to that one. And uh, and where what Perry's alluding to there is that we have five people on this show. Um, because today is the long, tr- long-awaited, many times trailered uh, digitization special uh, with Hamish Gill and Nate Johnson, um, and organising that uh, is not being as easy as, as it might be. I mean, there's what four, possibly five, no, four time zones I think going going on there, um, and daylight savings time changed in one of those time zones. Right, and so it's all—it's all Johnny's fault, but nothing has actually changed, has it? And I'm really confused. No, I actually—we started an hour later than I thought we were, so we're all good, for as far as I'm concerned. That's it. I, I, it also ex- explains why you're quite cheerful this morning as well. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah. Am I cheerful? I don't know. Yeah, more, more okay. so. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so yes, it is that it is that special digitization special. And uh, we have two guests with us that know a thing or two about digitization. In fact, they're specialists in the subject. Um, so I want to first say a hello and welcome to Hamish Gill of 35MMC and Pixelator fame. Hello, Hamish. Hello. You did, you did manage to make me borderline angry when I was at a meeting at the bank this morning and tell me that I had to be on an hour early than I was expecting to be, which was going to make me have to move the meeting. It's like <laughs> unbelievable. And then, you know, 300 lines of bullshit between the three of you trying to work out what time it was. And then it turned out you were wrong anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing changed. No. A, 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 a time zone changed but didn't, and nothing changed. It was really peculiar. Um, and well uh, anyway, uh, so we have one other guest uh, with us, another specialist in digitization. We have Nate Johnson of uh, Negative Lab Pro fame. That's a, a piece of software that uh, plugs into Lightroom and does amazing things. Hello, Nate. Hello. Hello from Florida. Ah, so that's a that's a good point because I didn't actually ask you where you're from. I knew, I knew you were um, <laughs> some somewhere where you weren't having to get up ridiculously early. Um, yeah, somewhere with daylight savings. Well, there you go. So, so what what time is it in Florida at the moment? 
Oh, I don't know anymore. <laughs> I, I think it's 10.30, maybe. Okay. Okay, so that yeah, it's, it's definitely been applied there. So uh, yeah, I'm still trying to get my head around this. Well, um, I think Nate, we let's let's have a little chat first before we before we get going because everybody knows Habish and let, fewer people uh, know about yourself. So you have a piece of software uh, which I became aware of last year. Uh, called Negative Lab Pro, which when it was first launched, it just sounded like the the best things in sliced bread, as in one of the biggest issues with digitization, especially with color film, is um, inverting it into colors that you can actually use and recognize. And I've, I used to use so many methods that sort of, whether it be on YouTube or on, on, on blogs and things like that. And, and you're doing things with curves and all sorts of things. And never, it was very, very difficult to get everything right. And then I came across your program, uh, put it into Lightroom, pressed the button and hey presto, the colors <laughs> look right. It was just like an epiphany. So I, I, I adore your software, I've got to say, but let's, let's find out a little bit more about yourself. And then once, we, once we've got that done, what we'll, we'll then talk more about digitization in general. Yeah, well, first, I mean, thank you for uh, those kind words. I mean, I love hearing people who have uh, good success with Negative Lab Pro and uh, love hearing that's been helpful for the pe to people. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's funny, my background, uh, I never really set out to make something like this or make a company like this. It just sort of happened where each step along the way kind of naturally led me to this. So my, my background, um, I have some background in, uh, marketing. I used to work for Johnson and Johnson, uh, uh, selling drugs to kids, uh, was, was, uh, a Tylenol motor and that sort of thing. And, uh, then I got into the startup scene and software development, and uh, eventually, I was I was doing uh, business consulting for uh, tech startups and software startups, and that I thought that was kind of going to be be my thing and my gig. And uh, around 2016, I started a blog called Nate Photographic, and it was really just sort of a diversion from my day-to-day uh, -day consulting business. In fact, I didn't even tell you know my wife about it because I was afraid she would think it would be a giant waste of time. Um, you know, she wouldn't want to be married to like a blogger. Uh, so uh, anyway, I, I it, Nate Photographic was something that uh, I, I was really interested at the time in the intersection of digital photography and film photography especially as it related to things like emulation. So like trying to make digital photos look like analog photos. And at the time I was shooting mainly digital, but I was starting to get more into film. And it was really, it was really just a hobby. I wasn't, you know, trying to, trying to sell anything or do anything. It was just something that really interested me. And so I started this blog and uh, kind of the steps along the way just naturally led towards Negative Lab Pro. Um, so, I mean, I'm happy to, happy to tell you about, about kind of the, kind of the evolution of that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that'd be great. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. So the, the, the blog, when I first started it, one of the first things I did was I had a whole series on Visco film presets. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of those, but they, they were like hugely popular in Lightroom a couple years back. And it was funny because you had like a ton of digital photographers who had never shot film before, who were using Visco film presets on their digital photos. 
and they had no idea what these things should look like. So they were just kind of clicking through, you know, Portra 400, Portra 800, uh, Fuji 400H. They're just kind of randomly clicking through all these presets and trying to figure out what looked best with their photo. And they didn't really have, you know, that that background on what those films were, or what they should do, or how they were to be used. And so I started writing these really in-depth guides on the films in the Visco packs and uh, how those looks were designed and what they were meant to do. And uh, those guides became uh, really popular. They started driving a lot of traffic and people saying, oh man, like, yeah, like I, I was, you know, it's so much easier to think, okay, I'm, I want this kind of look. So therefore let me use this preset verse. Let me just randomly click through presets and try to find something that, that, that I think looks good. So I started getting emails of people saying, Hey, you got, you should make your own presets. Like I love like your guides, like make your own presets. And so I launched uh, a free preset pack that was called something like 10 free Visco inspired presets. And uh, since launching that it's had close to half a million downloads. It's been uh, really, really popular. It's used, you know, all over the world. And people started saying, Hey, can you make more, more presets? I said, well, sure. So I started making more presets with more advanced options like custom camera profiles and kind of the nerd in me and the software development background was just fascinated by uh, the raw processing pipeline and DCP profiles and yeah, the DNG spec from from Adobe and just all the possibilities that were within that. And so I started making these more advanced presets and ba- and selling them. And basically with each pack that I launched, it earned enough income for me to fire one of the companies that I was consulting for. So I think I was was consulting for maybe three companies and over the course of maybe a year, I launched three packs. And by the end of the third pack, I was able to fire all three of the clients and just work on this full time. Wow. That's, I've I've got to say, I find it inspiring when I, when I hear people that have, have, um, taken taken their hobby and their interest, especially connected with photography, and actually made a, a, a lifestyle out of that. And uh, and by, by the sounds of it, you've done extremely well there. Yeah, I mean, it was it was. I mean, I really could never have predicted or or planned that it would have taken off like that. But you know, I was obviously very happy and grateful um, that 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 it could. I mean, it changed changed my life. And so, you know, by the end of that third pack, I was completely independent. I didn't have any consulting that I had to do. And so I started making other things. I made uh, two online courses. I made a course called Lightroom Mastery, which was focused on uh, learning how to see and emulate visual styles in Lightroom. So kind of targeted at people who wanted to make and sell their own presets, uh, which turns out that it's kind of a small audience, uh, just spoiler alert. Um, And then I, I made a course called Unlocking the Power of RAW which was a more technical course that was looking at how to make your own raw camera profiles and what they were and what what they did and why, why you uh, would want to have one. Um, so I, I made these courses, they were a tremendous amount of effort and they didn't do nearly as well as my, as my presets. So I'm like, okay, well, people just want presets. So I went back to making uh, more presets and I launched a pack called X-Chrome. And uh, X-Chrome was, uh, was a kind of a different approach to presets. It was trying to not just emulate like one look, it was trying to actually emulate like a process. So it was trying to simulate the entire black and white darkroom process. So rather than just like fully formed presets, it was a modular system. So there were three different groups of presets. There was a group for film, a group for chemical developers, and a group for like paper toner styles. So for instance, you could go in and select, okay, I want 
TriX 400 for the film, and I want to have it developed in HC 110 for the developer, and I want to have this on Ilford warm tone paper. And you know, you would you would select these three different presets, and they would all kind of combine together and uh, make this fantastic final result. Um, so there were you know literally thousands of potential looks you could get just based on the combinations of things you were selecting, and this was by far my most complex and successful pack. Um, uh, people who sh were kind of hybrid shooters who shot both black and white uh, uh, film and shot digital uh, loved being able to do this with their digital shots. And the biggest question I got from users was, hey, are you going to do a color film pack like this? You know, I love I love this black and white stuff, but like I would love to be able to emulate um, a Portra 400 more realistically than I'm getting from something like a, like a Visco. So basically, I started researching. Well, how do I how do I do this for color? And it became apparent pretty quickly it was going to be an entirely different beast when it came to color. And so I started shooting uh, a lot of color film. And um, I had been wanting to shoot more color film uh, for a while. I'd watched a lot of YouTube videos, people like Matt Day. Um, that you know, you watch these YouTube videos, and it just makes uh, color film just just the whole process and everything just, just so beautiful and appealing. And, um, anyway, so I started getting into, into that and I was really surprised quickly just how much I loved film photography. It was kind of a, a eye-opening, mind-blowing experience going from shooting mainly digital to shooting mainly film. I loved, uh, the gear, um, the, the classic lenses and the classic bodies. I loved the change of pace you know, not being constantly hooked to looking at my little preview screen, having to use my imagination a little bit, having to wait to get the film back. Um, it, I feel like it just made me kind of a more thoughtful photographer. And I found myself really enjoying uh, shooting again in a way that I, that I hadn't been with, with digital for a while. Um, but then I was surprised at how broken the process was for uh, uh, actually like processing the film. And, you know, I thought, well, hey, this will be easy. I'll just shoot some color film, send it to some labs, get it back, take the same shots on digital, and then just emulate it. But the results that I got back from the film labs were kind of all over the place. So I had the same role, and I sent it to multiple labs. And even running on, like, the same machine, I would get pretty different results. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just do this all at home. I'll, I got an Epson V600. Um, but the process for that was, like, mind-numbingly slow. And uh, the the software for that was kind of slow to use and difficult, and I still wasn't getting that look that that I wanted to have and that I wanted to emulate. And I had heard about DSLR scanning, and I had uh, most of what I needed to make it work, except for maybe a macro lens and a light table. So I got those things and started uh, started doing that. But here I ran into another roadblock, which is that the existing software for that was really terrible. Uh, it didn't keep the process raw. So most of them, you know, you had to manually bring it into Photoshop and edit from there. And you're losing, um, you're, you're no longer editing against the raw once you bring it into Photoshop. And it just quickly became this really disorganized mess of all these manually adjusted curves and layers and exported TIFFs and different folders. And uh, I was still getting kind of mediocre results. Um, so I was still thinking like, hey, I'm doing all this because I'm going to make a, 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 a digital pack um, for, for digital shooters. But I needed something better to to get there, and that's actually when I started making Negative Lab Pro. So I thought, okay, well, if I if I build 
you know, something that works in Lightroom and I know enough about the raw processing pipeline of Lightroom and I know enough about making, um, uh, the, making plugins because I had made another plugin called Opal a little while back. Um, you know, this is something that I could just do myself and it could really speed up my process of making these, these presets. And, uh, so about a month into that, I was like, whoa, this is actually pretty cool. This could actually be a product on its own. I wonder if anyone else would want something like this. And I put together a YouTube video just showing a little bit of the process. I put it up and the response from film photographers was, oh my God, this is exactly what I wanted. Um, so I said, okay, well maybe this is now its own thing. And I launched version one, maybe a couple months after that realization. And now it's been pretty much my sole focus for the past year and a half, just essentially just working on this piece of software, making it better, uh, making it so that it works for more photographers and more capture methods, uh, giving people better control over the tones and colors you're getting from it. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's become, it's taken on kind of a life of its own and, and uh, it's pretty much all I'm, I'm working on right now. I, I never actually made the, uh, the preset, the preset pack. I still get people uh, ask, asking me about that. And when I'm going to, when I'm going to finish that, cause I, I alluded that I was working on it to some, to some of my users. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I accidentally ended up making negative lab pro. Right. Well, the, there's, 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 there's so much in there too, where that we could go back to, but I'm, I, there's something that, uh, those presets and that system that you that you had there, where you would choose the the, the film and then the, the the development process and then and then the toning at the end, that almost makes me want to go out and start shooting more digital again and then, <laughs> and then do the same thing. I mean, it's it's just that sounds. I can I can see why that was popular, um, especially with those those shooters that are familiar with film and digital, because you know those that, that that's one of the big thing about shooting film, especially if you're developing. Um, your, your own photographs or processing your own photographs and you're also starting well in my case I'm starting to print as well um, I find the whole all those things incredibly fascinating how one developer can do something differently or and also the way that you actually print in the darkroom and uh, the the amount of uh, variation that, that's available to you but of course when you're shooting with film you've got to, it's it's uh, well it's a bit like um, what's wrong with a lot of the software that you were talking about you you start one way and that's it you can't go back you know you you can't you can't decide oh i'll i think i'll i think i'm going to shoot that with with something by ilford instead of using trix well no you've done trix and that's it you know so you only have one go it's 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 at each method which is pretty exciting but can be quite frustrating when you're thinking i should have done it another way yeah the i mean the idea of the idea of presets worked uh worked really well with black and white but would work less well with um with color film because so much of uh so much of uh, color film happens in uh so much of color film processing happens in the form of evaluation so it happens in the form of analysis uh against it um and there's a lot more complications like analyzing the um the density and analyzing uh the the uh the, the orange mask and um, the, the, uh, the, the ways that some of the, the lab scanners evaluate, you know, don't just take into, into, into consideration the, uh, that one frame, but also the, uh, the entirety of your role. So, you know, depending on the other shots in your role, that, ex that existing frame could actually end up looking a little bit different. Um, so all these things, it, it's, 
it, it, the, the modular system worked incredibly well for black and white, but um, would be not possible in its current state with uh, with with color. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that is absolutely fascinating stuff but we 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 need to talk in more general terms now about digitization as, as a whole um and and when we're talking about digitization we, it is simply a matter say simply uh, because there's so many different ways of doing this but it's, it's a case of you've you've processed your uh, your film negative whether that be uh, 35 mil uh, APS, the future of uh, photography, of course, and uh, <laughs> um, or any of the any of the other formats. Um, and uh, so, once you've done that, so you've you process your film and you want to put that into a way that you can share it um, or digitize it, share it, and keep it digitally in a uh, in a uh, on a hard drive. Because of course, Hamish, uh, in particular, he he will take a photograph and then throw his negatives away as soon as he's uh, taken that photograph. <laughs> Uh, um, some, some of us tend to uh, hang on to those uh, negatives a little bit longer, just in case. Uh, but um, but they do burn them. <laughs> burn them, yes. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so digitization. There's been there are lots of different ways of actually doing that. And um, Johnny, you're going to give us a little bit of a rundown on the the various methods that are available, and we're going to concentrate on the, on a couple at the end. So uh, Johnny, if you want to give us a bit of a run through. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, just, I, I guess we were talking, um, before we started, uh, just uh, to, uh, sort of identify the landscape of ways to, to digitize film, um, and going from roughly high end to let's call it low end. Um, I mean, you, you've got, you know, PMT drum scanners on the high end, which are essentially lab scanners for high end, high res resolution scanning, um, uh, from there, you've got like pseudo drum scanners, like the Imicon Flex Tight, uh, which are not exactly drum scanners, but they're sort of something hybrid in the middle. Uh, then you have higher end uh, film scanners, so dedicated uh, film scanners, typically for 35 millimeter. Um, there are commercial lab scanners, which are high, typically high volume 35 millimeter scanners, such as the uh, uh, what do you call it? The um, What's the one everybody's freaking out about now? Naritsu. Naritsu. Yeah. Well, the, the Naritsu, right. The Naritsu and the, uh, with the other one. Thank you. Frontier. Yeah. Uh, Frontier and the other one. Pack on. Pack on. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, the pack on that everybody's paying big dollars for now. Um, and those are those are typically hooked up to a, you know, a PC and uh, scan 35 millimeter at very high volume. Um, and do a pretty good job of it. Then you've got the higher end uh, flatbed scanners. So these are not exactly commercial, or I'm sorry, not exactly consumer grade. They're a little bit higher priced, more expensive. Um, then you have the consumer flatbed scanners, uh, such as the Epsons that some people really like, such as Perry. Uh, and then you've got the uh, CMOS film scanning machines, which are sort of these all-in-one push a button kiosk style machines that are um, they're better than they used to be, but they're, they're fairly low end. Um, and then I think the thing we're going to talk about probably more today is digitizing, which I put in somewhat of a different category than scanning. Um, but it basically we're talking about turning film into digital using a mirrorless or DSLR camera. 
um, and some sort of light setup. Or an um, iPhone. Was that? Or an iPhone. Or, yes, I guess, or an iPhone, right? I mean, that's the thing um, about it, isn't it? It can be anything, it, it, it can be anything from low quality to ridiculously high quality, depending right, on the Right, which is the why setup. I kind of put it in a different category because it very much depends on how you go about that process. I mean, it, like, like, uh, Hamish said, you, you can you can do quick snaps with an iPhone and get something usable, or you can you can set up a dedicated uh, digitizing setup, which is going to give you, to my eyes at least, um, can be nearly on the level of drum scanning. Um, so it's it, there. There's a there's kind of a wide variety out there of of ways to do it, uh, but it it seems like the um, uh, the method that has gotten a lot of attention more recently is the digitizing method, which I think both of our guests today, um, uh, you know, can speak to in terms of the products that they're, uh, they're working on that seem to be primarily aimed at people, uh, going the route of digitizing, although not entirely. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm just thinking before we, before we get onto, onto that one and, and home flatbed scanning, I think it's mm -hmm. worth doing a quick rundown of the other methods in terms of pros and cons. Um, and uh, you know, how they relate to people such as, uh, uh, drum scanning that you've was top of the pile. Uh, that, that gives you potentially, uh, the best or uh, I think that's arguable and we'll, we'll, we'll touch upon that. No doubt. Um, uh, but those things are massive, aren't they? And they're, they're, yeah, they're not the kind of thing you can have in no, your house unless here. your house is massive. Is that correct? No, you could actually. They're not. They're not. They're not that massive. Um, they. I mean, they can be, but typically they're not. You know, they don't weigh. They don't weigh two tons, and you don't need a flatbed truck to haul them around. Um, but they're bigger. It's. It's more. It's more that it requires. Um, uh, it's more that it requires the knowledge to run them and, and also it requires the upkeep on them, which is, um, can be a bit of a challenge these days. Uh, and, and I mean, they're, they're slower, but they're very high quality. So it, it's, to, it's, a, it's a method that requires scale though, isn't it, it really? You're not going to. Yeah, it, right. I mean, it does, it does for the most part. Yeah. Uh, so and then the the next the next one I mean you mentioned the hybrid one but the next one that people might be aware of are those those pro scanners like uh, the Fuji Frontier Neritsu and Pacon and things like that um, some people do have and Hasselblad do one as well don't they and uh, some some people do actually have uh, that that equipment um, and I know that uh, hey Michelle well you either own or you've put it out on 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 loan haven't you your your Naritsu, is that right yes um yeah yeah so i've got one i bought one when you could still get them for about 800 quid um and now they're worth about three grand i think something ridiculous um i've got another ls1100 but i've give, given it to uh duncan from uh silverpan film lab so he can do when I, if I send him some some film to be developed, he can just scan it for me because I'm massively lazy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's interesting that you, you've you you have had one of those and you sort of hand, handed that one out. And I know that you've you've talked about that in the past. Um, and as you, you've already said it as much, like you'd rather it be done by somebody else who Ooh, yeah. who's also processing your film yes. at the well, same the, time. The problem with the problem with something like a Naritsu. From a from a using it at home point of view, is they're not 
really designed to be used at home. So to get the most of that, then you have to use a piece of software called Easy Controller. So you can use them without Easy Controller, um, which you just use this for Twain drivers or something. And it, um, you can, like, wear a fan view if you come across that, and you, it, it will just use a kind of a, a standalone version of the, stock, the software. But standalone version is quite, quite basic. It's very good, but it's quite basic. Um, if you want to get the best out of it, you have to use Easy Controller. Now, Easy Controller is a print, uh, photographic print workflow software. So it's not just, it's not really, it is for scanning, um, and you can output scans to CD or to, to, to a hard drive with it. But the, what it was originally designed for was that, <clears throat> you know, you'd send your films to the lab. The lab would... Um, uh, would process your negatives, put it into the Noritsu um, scanner, which would then send files to a, a, a C-type printer um, and, and and deliver prints to to the customer. Um, and you know, the sort of having it having having your images on a CD was sort of an added thing that you could have. So the, the software has come along a bit since then, but of course, Noritsu don't even make these scanners anymore. They don't really. They still support the software. Like there's been updates for um, Windows 10 and uh, and that recently. But yeah, as I say, it's very to use it as a to use it properly. It's incredibly clunky. I, I just haven't got the patience anymore. So when I, I was chatting to Duncan, and you know, Duncan does all my dev, as I've said, and he's um, he uses a he's got a, a um, Hasselblad flex on it, which of course. <laughs> for a lab is a very slow scanner. So I just, it's fine for, for medium and medium format and, and large format. But for the sake of 35 mil, he just needed something quicker. So I said to him, well, look, just have my, <laughs> have my Noritsu. You can scan my 35 mil on it um, and, and, and use it for your, for your customers stuff. But, you know, use it as an opportunity to get good at the scanning software in a way that I could never be bothered to do. Well, what's, um, what's what's interesting there, or one one of the things that's interesting there is is that the Ritsu have updated the software because that isn't the case with many of the other pieces of equipment, is it? No. Well, I mean, some of the, I mean, Kodak have nothing to do with the Pacon. Oh, I don't think I'm not sure Kodak made it in the first place anyway. But, but as far as I know, the Pacon is is you know sort of a long dead and unsupported piece of piece of equipment. Yeah, I have a I have a Pacon, and I have to run uh, Windows XP in a virtual box to, to, to make it work. And the software is, it looks like it has been updated since like the nineties. Yeah. And that's the same for, I mean, there's others, there's others as well kicking around that just, I mean, some, some that just don't, don't work at all as far as I can work out. Um, and obviously there's the, the Fuji frontiers, which aren't supported anymore. I don't, I don't think. Um, so yeah, Noritsu at least, you know, there has been some support in the last couple of years. But as I say, they've stopped making the scanner, so inevitably they're going to stop supporting it at some point as well. So. I think that, that support, though, is possibly one of the reasons why they're actually going up in price like they are compared to perhaps some of the others. At least you can still use the things. Yeah, and then, of course, there's those idiot bloggers who go on, go on about the fact that they bought Noritsu and then start a Noritsu Facebook users group. And it's <laughs> Noritsu users Facebook group, and then yeah, all of a sudden the value of them goes through the room. sorry no, no, that's, that's all right uh, you're just reverting to type there Amish. don't worry yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um and then the, the the other type and 
is uh, as John has already alluded to, is the um, I forget what he actually called it. The kind of way you just feed a uh, negative. It's like a home. It's a home version of a pack-on scanner, isn't it? Really, uh, you just feed them through it. Uh, did he say it was CMOS? Was that right, Johnny? Well, I think we've lost Johnny at the moment. So he's not, he's this, on, he's if he's if he's talking about, I, I assume he's talking uh, about the plus the plus text. So your, your plus text scanners are the difference between something like that and a Naritsu is that whilst they they sort of work in a similarish way, I think. Um, although no, they don't actually. To be fair, but anyway, regardless, the the, the plus text you can only f you have to manually feed. Uh, I believe you have to manually feed the film. One by one, uh, one frame by you know frame by frame. You do one frame, click a button, scan it, and then, then you have to do the next frame. So they take. That's why I didn't go down that road. That yeah. road. Yeah. I, so I you, sorry. Yeah. So you got that. You have the high end dedicated film scanners like the um, the old Nikon Cool Scans, which do a a really great job. Uh, but then you've got the lower end consumer sort of level uh, CMOS film scanners, which are um, it's really basically a little digital camera, <laughs> uh, not super high resolution and in a, in a box and you push a button and it scans, you know, it scans your strips of film. Um, so there, you know, there's a land, there's a hierarchy, I guess, of, uh, of types here, but typically the ones, um, we think of these days are those, uh, those little tabletop, uh, push a button, you know, film scanners. And Carl, Carl had one of those, didn't he? He did. Yeah, yeah, he did. He he did have one, and he used it. He used it for a while, and then he started just getting his scans done directly at the lab. Yeah, uh, which are, which typically are going to be quite a bit higher quality. Yeah, yeah. Those 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 little ones, those little ones that the sort of plus techs are the kind of top end of that. Right. That right. you can buy now. Those little right, ones right. that the, the sort of Chinese. Sort of little. I mean, they, they have the tiny, tiny little sensors in them, and the 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 the, the, the you know the conversion from from negative to positive is 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 utterly rubbish. I mean, the color response from it is just a, another level of shit. But but perfect for the Instagram generation, though. Well, I wouldn't. Eat, it's like a filter. No. It's like a built-in filter <laughs> yeah. to make it more awesome. Yeah, if you like. <laughs> okay, well, I think we've 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 done a rundown of the pros and cons of the others, and I've left two type two types without um, that being uh, flatbed scanning and uh, the uh, digitization is a, is a is a wider subject. Let's let's talk about um, flatbed scanning and uh, Perry. Uh, that's that's your method of choice at the moment. You've got a, a, a V V six hundred, is it Perry? <laughs> Uh, V seven hundred. Oh, there yeah. you go. So you, that, does that mean you can go up to ten by eight with that? Uh, I don't know. I've never tried. <laughs> that, that. I mean, you assume I've ever shot large format for that, but no, no, no. I mean, it can do medium format, no problem. Um, I use it for one thirty five and one twenty. I can definitely do larger formats, but I don't know if it can do eight by ten. I don't have the uh, holder thingies either for that. No, but but ultimately that that is the method that you use for digitizing your your negatives, and you're mm -hmm. are you reasonably happy with doing it that way? Well, I do it because I'm extremely lazy at this step. Um, it, it it is the biggest hole in my film workflow uh, because if I want to print my film, I'm going to go to a dark room uh, and not scan it and print it digitally, and. If I'm going to digitize it, I'm only really going to put it on like Instagram or do it on the web. So for those purposes, 
uh, I'm perfectly happy with the results. Um, honestly, when I got it, I didn't really know of any of the other methods. Um, or, or, or rather, when I looked into them, it was like, oh, you can buy a copy stand, and I have neither the space nor the patience to use a copy stand. Um, I, I mean, the quality is not great compared to lab scans, especially for 35 millimeter film. It's a little bit of a pain in the ass to use. Um, I tried using ViewScan. I tried using SilverFast. Uh, Silver, what's it called? Silver, SilverFast. Silver yeah, SilverFast, which that that's the worst interface I've ever used um, <laughs> on any software. So I just use the default Epson Scan software, and it works fine for me. And then I just edit the shots I like in Photoshop. I mean, it's it's not ideal, and I know it's not ideal, but it just it's just this thing that I can plug into my computer, um, turn it on, and then you know take negatives out of a sleeve and get it going, and then just go and do something else, uh, and it'll be done when I get back. Epson Scan is massively underrated. I think I used to use it, and I tried the View Scan and Silverfast, and, and um, yeah, I mean it, it, it's it's the, the interface. I'd rather poke my eyes out. It's horrendous. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, Epson Scan actually works, and it, yeah, yeah. it can take a bit of a bit of fiddling, um, and certainly for for medium medium and large format, it's it's pretty pretty good, really. Yeah, uh, it especially looks great for one twenty. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say with with the, I mean, I've I've used the the, the Epson software myself, and the yeah, I, I do recognise some of the things that you're saying there, including about the other software options available for driving driving scanners. But with the the Epson, when you talk about fiddling, are you talking about like things like Dmax and stuff like that? I, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> how, about, how about you, Hamish? D, I don't know what Dmax means. No. no, I'm really hoping Nate does now. So that's the uh, the densest point in the film. I think that's what it is. But to be honest, I just know that there was something to do with VMAX and setting it in the right way, and you can make quite a big difference to the quality of, the, of your scans if you set the set it up correctly. Because sometimes you you would do a scan and you think, well, it's just a bit off or whatever, and sometimes it'd be better, and you'd be wondering, well, why is it doing this well, and, and why isn't it doing that well? And um, and I've got in my head there's something to do with setting the DMAX points and things like that on the actual scanning. And if you do actually set it up as well as you can do and put, take the time out to actually do that, you tended to get better results. Does that does that ring true? Wait, are, are you are you talking about color there? Um, possibly. Uh, D yeah, go on. <laughs> no, DMAX just refers to the densest point in the film. And typically, if you don't, if you've not set up your scanner slash digitizing setup based on based on dmax and dmin yeah you're gonna get results that look pretty awful um so I, it's difficult because it becomes just a click button that you can push that um is somewhat unrelated from the process if that makes sense so you can push the button like any other button and think oh well that looks better i'll just change the dmax button <laughs> But, but it, so in other words, what I'm saying is it's, it becomes disconnected from uh, how it would be used if you were setting things up, uh, you know, from the start on, let's say, a drum scanner where you would measure your DMAX and DMIN before you make the scan. You see what I'm saying? So I think on a, like a drum, on a, on a flat, consumer flatbed scanner, it becomes just another button that can change things, but it, it's not necessarily connected to 
a knowledge of what that does. And I think that's where it can become a little bit, a little bit troublesome and confusing. Don't some scanners have higher DMAX capability? So, so you've got, um, this is one of the things with the Naritsu, as far as I understand it, it has a higher, um, whatever it is, capability, the right word, it has a higher capability. So you, so I can put negatives through, if I'm, if I take it, if I shoot a roll of film, which I have done in the past, at some absurd, just for the sake of testing it, it's like 10 stops, like portrait, you can shoot it at like 10 stops overexposed and get, you know, a negative that's about three inches thick and put it through the Naritsu and it will still produce, you get color, sh- like magenta color shifts and stuff, but you can, if you, if you tweak the settings, you can still get a, a, a good result because the, the capability of that scanner is, it's very good. I guess it has a very bright light that it can shine through the through the negative, which which increases that Dmax capability. Is that well, what it, I just said? Or yeah, sort of. Yeah, I mean, because basically, what it, if it, the scanner is rating in in Dmax, what it's telling you is it's how much dynamic range it can reproduce. Mm. So if in other, if the easiest way to think about it is how many stops of information can be recorded based on the 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 you know the DMAX that the scanner is capable of, of rendering. Um, that's, pr- I don't know. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. I mean, but, but all this, I mean, to me, brings up a, a fundamental problem with most scanner workflows. And that's that yeah. there's not a separation of the capture process and the edit process. Right, right, right. So you're having to do kind of both in conjunction with each other. So you're, you're making a preview scan and then you're trying to edit against a preview scan and then you're physically, you know, capturing it against those against those variables and so you're making all these decisions every time you capture uh when a better workflow would be to just capture without worrying about editing right and then have that original information and be able to edit it however you choose later without losing that original information so that's um one thing that has surprised me about negative lab pro is when i first launched it i had expected it to be mainly for people who were shooting uh, or, or digitizing with a um, with a digital camera, but almost fifty percent of the users are using something like Epson Scan or ViewScan or Silverfast for capture, uh, and then bringing it over into Negative Lab Pro. Um, yeah, and that way they're able to when they're capturing with their flatbed, they don't have to worry about editing or DMAX or any of these settings. They just have this one, you know, set raw setting that they that they do to capture. And then they can do all the processing in batch inside of Lightroom inside of Negative Lab Pro. Wait, so I, I have a question. Yeah. Um, because I, I've never heard of this DMAX thing. I don't think I've ever touched a setting. I didn't even know that setting existed. So what I do is probably really stupid. And tell me if this is really stupid. But it, it, the, the principle is similar to what you're saying, Nate, where I don't want to do too much of the edit in the actual capture process. So I just I do the preview scan and then I just pull up the levels for each. I only do this with black and white, by the way. Color I gave up ages ago and I just send those to a lab. Um, but I just I pull up the levels on the negative and then I just extract as much tonal detail as I can. So I get a super flat scan uh, and then everything else I'll just do in Photoshop and bring it back. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that that will work better with black and white than it will with color. Um for sure, oh, because color. <laughs> yeah, because Epson is making you know decisions on the color when it's inverting it. Um, that you'd be better off postponing those decisions to a later point when you can do it all at once. Mm-hmm. 
So just just talk talk me through the process there, uh, as I'm, I'm I'm not entirely clear. So you've got your flatbed scanner. Um, let's let's stick with uh, Epson because they seem to be the the, the, the most popular uh, out there. Um, I, I scan my roll of thirty five millimeter color film. Um, should I set the scanner up in a particular way, bearing in mind that I'm going to export it into Lightroom to then go into Negative Lab Pro? Yeah, you basically, you uh, set it up to scan as a positive. Uh, so instead of telling Epson Scan, hey, this is a negative, uh, you just tell Epson Scan, hey, this is just a regular positive image. Ah. And that way it won't invert it. Uh, and you can do the inversion process later inside of Negative Lab Pro. And there's a couple other settings that that uh, that are good to have. I have um, uh, inside the Negative Lab Pro form, uh, there's a whole section just for Epson Scan that shows uh, settings and, and and different things you can try out and use, but it's essentially you uh, capture it as a positive, and you have as few settings or changes as possible when you're doing it, um, and that that actually works uh, really well. Uh, there's uh, an Instagrammer uh, named Linus and his camera. He just came out with a great video showing how he does that process exactly as I've just described using Epson Scan as a positive, and then brings it into Negative Lab Pro. Um, and if you're using ViewScan or Silverfast, it's actually even a little bit easier because both ViewScan and Silverfast, you can scan as a raw DNG file. So you don't have to worry about any of the settings. You just scan as a raw DNG. And when you bring it into Negative Lab Pro, Negative Lab Pro actually has special camera calibration profiles made specifically for scanners coming from ViewScan or Silverfast as a raw. And so the entire process just stays raw. Oh, that's genius. It is. I mean, there was, I think there was a pause there because I was thinking, that's, that's, that's just great. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really, really good. Um, so when when you're exporting that that, that scan, are you, is there a particular file uh, type that's best to be uh, to be exporting it as, I assume, TIFF um, from, a, from a Epson? Is that right? It would, in Epson, it would be a, a, a TIFF that would be 16 bits per channel. Yeah. But for ViewScan and Silverfast, it can just be a DNG file. Yeah. No, that's 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 fascinating. Um, so, um, so yeah. Um, so, is there anything else we might we might want to cover on flatbed scanning before we move on to DSLR scanning, for want of a better phrase? Uh, well, I think you know, in, in comparing and transitioning to the two methods, the biggest difference for me would be obviously the. Um, the way you would achieve focus, right? Because when you're scanning with something like a V700, I had to, you know, a lot of people get those custom uh, uh, film holders, which work really well, but I, I had to adjust the the feet, the height of the feet quite a few times uh, before I figured out what which ones work the best. And that's one of the annoying things about flatbeds, especially if your film curls like Tri-X, then you got all kinds of pain. Hmm. Actually, that's that's another point. I mean, we've not talked about this in the uh, in the run up to this, but there's different ways of of actually scanning the negatives, like wet wet wet, wet mounting, wet mounting, and stuff like that. Um, if if any, I've I've never I've never done that. I've never seen it done. Um, uh, Nate, it sounds like you you might know a little bit about the subject. I don't know if you can give us a quick run through of what wet mounting is about and why. I yes, I have done some wet mounting both for. Um, both for scanner and for uh, digitizing with a camera. Um, wet mounting 
essentially you're you're using liquid uh, on on the film to uh, make it perfectly flat. Uh, but you also get this benefit when you wet mount that uh, the scratches aren't visible, dust isn't visible. Um, it's really a, a it, it's a pain in the ass to do um, because you have to do it for each piece of film um, mm-hmm. or for each shot that, that that you do, and it it you know can be very uh, very tiresome. Um, but it can produce incredible uh, results. Like if you want for everything to be perfectly 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 flat that's really the best way to do it um there's a company called aztec a-z-t-e-k that sells supplies for this sort of thing they're very Mm -hmm. expensive i know that there's companies that that probably sell the same things for for cheaper um that but that's the the company that i found and they had kind of the complete the complete uh packages so i just got some of those um and yeah i've done some comparisons of wet mounting versus using things like uh, uh, anti-Newton ring glass and wet mounting is, you know, is the best, uh, but it's a huge pain in the ass to do. Right. Yeah. And that's how drum scanners work is you're wet mounting to the, to the drum. Um, and that's part of why they're, the quality is, is so high. Um, you, you can also do it. I, I've, I, before I kind of gave up completely on, scanning film with a flatbed scanner uh i was i was also wet mounting um and the results are much better i mean they're they're much much better i was using anti-newton ring glass and you know wet mounting to that and it it works really well it's just to me the time trade-off time versus quality trade-off on a flatbed scanner is just it's not worth it um yeah, uh, Johnny. Just on a, a quick one there, we've mentioned that the words just come up a couple of times, and that's Newton rings and anti-Newton ring glass. Um, I'm just wondering if you can just explain what 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 that is. Uh, yeah. Um, well, if Newton rings, if you've ever seen a photo, uh, you probably have where you get this pattern of it almost looks like tree rings. I guess as a way to, yeah, um, right. Uh, is usually what it what it looks like, um, uh, and basically those are the Newton rings, which are um, rings that you get typically with the um, the uh, um, the what do you call it the base the base side of the film when it's laid on the piece of glass. Uh, you can sometimes get those rings. Uh, just because I guess the trying to, I don't know, I don't know if I can explain the scientific reason behind it, but you get those rings from the two surfaces interacting and essentially anti-Newton ring glass is treated in a way where it, it, it doesn't really produce Newton rings when it comes in contact with a piece of film. Um, yeah. No, that's right. That's, I think, or, I think or two pieces of glass coming together as well. So, yeah. Okay, I, th- I think we've uh, that's we've got into that one enough. And so now let, let's let's move on to um, arguably the main part of the of the show, and that is uh, digitizing using uh, a digital camera, where you're actually taking a, a photograph of uh, of of the negative, um, and then you're processing whichever software you you you're choosing to use. And uh, this this is the method that I I moved towards about. 18 months ago was I was frustrated with uh, flatbed scanning um, I didn't particularly like the process I didn't like the software and I wasn't actually that particularly impressed with the results either um, largely because I was pixel peeping way too much um, but 
you know, once you once you know it's not right and uh, and you it's it's there and it's in the back of your mind. And I was thinking, well, I can do better than this by using uh, by using my camera. And it was actually that this was the method that Johnny um, put me onto because this this is um, his 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 main reason. Uh, apart from when he goes out and actually takes amazing bokeh shots with his Fuji camera, um, <laughs> this is actually his main reason why he has uh, a digital camera. So perhaps Johnny, you could give us a, a, a little rundown of of your setup that you have uh, to uh, digitize the film with your di your digital camera uh okay um i have a diagram of this too i can i can share it if if we like in the show notes but uh, i guess starting from the top down uh let's talk about it that way well the first first thing is I, I i did this for a long time with a um a tripod that had a um uh that could that could be used horizontally so i could take the uh, support out for the tripod head, put it horizontally on the tripod and set it up that way. The problem was get, keeping things level is really important uh, doing this. And that was too much of a pain to get things level each time. So I finally got a copy stand and that solved the whole problem because it keeps everything uh, flat <laughs> and squared and square to each other, right? Could, so could keeping that- I was gonna say with a copy stand, for, for those people that don't know what a copy stand is, could, could you just explain, just quick rundown what that, what that might be for people who haven't actually seen one of these things? Yeah, it's basically, it's a baseboard and uh, a tube. And the tube, um, the tube is at a 90 degree angle to the baseboard, right? And the tube uh, holds typically an arm that then supports a camera. Um, that can be raised and lowered uh, via a crank, you know, that goes up and down that tube to put the camera at a specific distance from the baseboard, right? And then on the baseboard, you have your light source. Yeah. So it's it's basically like a reverse enlarger. Mm -hmm. That's right? exactly so, what I was going to say. Yeah, it's basically like a reverse enlarger. It's an enlarger, you know, the light source is at the top, right? And uh, when you're doing digitizing with a... Um, with a copy stand, your light source is at the bottom. So, but they it works in the same way. It's 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 positioning uh, the the digitizing source at a certain distance from the from the film, um, and you've got a you know you've got a light source to make that happen. So anyway, I have a, a copy stand, and then on that copy stand, I have a digital camera, and then attached to that digital camera, I have uh, a mount adapter which is then attached to a bellows unit. And what the bellows unit does is it provides uh, focus for the lens on the bellows, which I use a flat field macro lens, which is designed for reproducing, uh, you know, copy basically. Um, uh, so it's, so I, I, you don't need a fancy lens for this. This lens cost me about 15 bucks. It's from probably 1970. And it will probably outperform ninety percent of modern day macro lenses. But um, copy stands are expensive. No, they're not. It depends on what you do. They, they. I got mine for I think one hundred and fifty dollars. Um, you can the brand new ones that are still made are in the range of like two hundred ish dollars, maybe a little bit more. But you can find used ones out there. Um, they're not they're not impossible to find if you search around for them. The problem is they tend to be a little bit bulky and a little bit not necessarily heavy, but heavy enough that they're hard to ship. So if you can find one locally, is generally well just just on eBay on eBay at the moment. If you type in copy stand, uh, yeah, there's loads out there. 
And yeah, they, they're a, not... a lot. A lot of the cheap ones are yeah. crap. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because it's your camera is hanging from it, right? So you don't want to cheap out on that. <clears throat> no, it's good to get a good. I mean, I have mine is an old, very small. I mean, mine's a really small copy stand, but you don't need that much travel if you're setting up with a digital camera. Um, so mine has a tube that's about. Uh, uh, 24 inches so a couple couple feet high um so not quite a meter <laughs> um and it, mine is an old durst copy stand so Dur- durst who makes enlargers so it's you know i have i have a decent one and i think if you can find a vintage one yeah it'll probably be better than a modern cheap one in terms of quality and and here's the other thing if you're buying a copy stand you don't you're not buying it for reproducing reflective artwork so most copy stands sold now will include a uh lighting system for lighting artwork where it's got a pair of lights that sort of hang off on the side at an angle to illuminate flat artwork you really don't need any of that so you're just looking for a a baseboard um when you're buying a copy stand so you can kind of eliminate the the ones with the lighting kits uh because most people aren't using those lighting kits for anything yeah, the one the one i use is a uh it's actually a meopta enlarger a 35 millimeter okay. enlarger and it's yep. uh, i i took the uh enlarger off sold that on ebay and uh because i also it, it came with a copy stand attachment specifically for that enlarger yeah. so yep. yeah, job done it cost me effectively nothing um, yeah so the, there are there are deals out there and there are different ways of, of making these things work there's one on the uh, ebay that was sold as brand new by bressler and made in germany as well for 71 pounds so yeah uh, yeah that's another that's a really good way to do it is basically if you buy an enlarger and don't use the enlarger head you've got a copy stand because you've got a baseboard you've got the the upright and you have a uh, method for raising and lowering whatever attached to that co- you know that uh, that copy stand so yeah that'll that'll definitely work as well um, so yeah uh, I mentioned the lens and then you've got the light source I I use an LED light pad because they're very even um, I in my opinion there's no way to make a <laughs> there's no way to make a light box with, with a fluorescent tube work uh, yeah. because ultimately you're not going to get even illumination. You're going to get, you're going to get light fall off because of the shape of the bulbs. So um, a good led light pad is, you know, it solves the problem of, of even illumination. Totally um, agree. And I just want to jump, jump in there because the, so illumination is definitely one of the biggest single problems that you'll, you'll encounter with these things. Yeah. The, uh, and so light pad, great way of doing it. Um, and secondly, it's what's actually holding your, uh, negatives. Um, right. was when I was doing, going through the DIY routes, that was really causing me big headaches and, uh, including with, I, I think I ended up using, uh, your method, Johnny, where you'd get a, uh, a negative holder from an enlarger. Um, but even that's not always as easy as it sounds because a lot of these things are designed to sit in the system. And so they don't actually sit particularly flat on on your lights or stuff like that. Right. If, if you're going to do it that way, which I, I do that because I, you know, I've had the same and larger negative carriers for, for 30 years or whatever. Um, when I had an enlarger. So I, you know, I just use the simple Bessler, uh, the flat ones you, you want, 
in a larger, you want a negative carry if you're going that route. That's just a flat. Um, typically, it's just two pieces of metal, and it looks like a little. It looks like a <laughs> and essentially, that's all you need. Now, you know, like I said, I had those on hand. Um, which is why I don't have, you know, have something like a pixelator, but a pixelator is a great idea if you don't already have negative carries on hand for the different sizes you want to digitize in. And that's, um, and that is the, that's the key. I, I've, I've, you've stolen my thunder there. Was, I was going to, I was going to bring Hamish in because, uh, one of yeah. the, the, the big thing about using negative holders is you need to have a negative holder for each size of film that you take, right. uh, the, that you're going to want to digitize. And if, and those of us out there that are multi-format shooters, um, that's a, that can yeah. be a bit of a pain. And well, it's, yeah. I mean, if you want like a one, a one, a single unit to do it all. Right. That would be, I mean, I have a stack of enlarger car- carriers for different sizes and I've had them. Uh, but I mean, they, you know, they cost, I bought one the other day just because I saw it and I was like, yeah, I was all right. I'll just get it. I could use another one. It was 15 bucks. So they're not particularly expensive, but you do have to, you know, buy, buy them at all the different sizes you want to use. Um, some of them are, you're probably gonna have to file them out to make them full frame because a lot of the 35 millimeter car- carriers will crop in on your image a little bit. Yeah. So I, mine are filed out, but again, I did that years ago. I filed them out. Um, so if you don't want to spend the time of trying to locate in larger carriers and grind them out, then, you know, again, uh, a single solution can be a really good alternative. So Hamish, this is a good time to bring you into this conversation again. Um, I've got in front of me um, one of the first retail um, units of the Pixelator. Um, well, kind of, sort of <laughs> final, final, sort of pre-production ones. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, I'm. I think it's very, very good, and it does. It it does. It fulfills the function of not only uh, being able to lay your your film down flat but do it within a single unit so you don't have to have one for 35 mil one for six by six one for six by seven one by six by nine six by twelve and four by five um and believe it or not i actually shoot most of those different formats in one way or Mm. another so having this system where you can actually you know just have one piece of kit that does all of those things and you can drop it onto in my case onto a uh, an led bed I think it's just a godsend. Well, hopefully. And uh, a the key to it as well is the budget price. Like when I first just started down this road, a big part of my motivation was about creating a product that helped sort of democratise this um, process. Of course, when I first started this, uh, seven years ago, something ridiculous, there was very little there was a lot less around in, in terms of these uh, and a, a lot less, a lot fewer people doing this. So I, I bought a, um, uh, uh, what's it called? A Harman Titan pinhole, the Walker Titan pinhole. And, uh, and, a, and, a, and a, what do you call it? A, a mod 54. Uh, and obviously got Patterson tanks and shot my first few frames at, um, developed them myself in, with my mod 54 and my Patterson tank and then had these five four negatives and of course didn't know what to do with them then i've got a, an epson scanner that didn't go you know it's the 500 or whatever that only goes up to medium format um so figured that the best way i could get that negative into the computer was to take a photo of it which i did with 
I think I had a Sony RX100 at the time, and I sellotaped my negative to a, a piece of perspex. I had a client uh, in plastics fabrication, and he gave me a bit of perspex, sort of opal perspex, and I sellotaped my 5 by 4 negatives to it and took a photo, and that was the thing that kind of made me think, well, there's, some, there's something in this. Um, but yeah, the, the, I was sort of a, became aware of you know much more expensive products, um, you know much higher end products, but wanted something that was because this will do, as you say, all of the medium format sizes, but it also does thirty five mil from sort of well less than half frame if such a thing existed, half frame, square frame, thirty five, you know twenty four by thirty six, the standard frame, and then. Um, you know, if, if somebody crazy like Johnny decides to take a, uh, a panoramic frame that's 24 millimeters tall and 120 millimeters wide, you could digitize that with it as well. Um, so, do you have any plans to, to make this suitable for APS? Um, well, it, it pro- <laughs> well you, you, you joke, but it probably I haven't I haven't got any APS film because you know I'm not weird, but. Um, you, you could. I would imagine that there's a position that the gates, the the vertical gate. So you've got two types of gates. You've got the horizontal gates and the vertical gates. The horizontal gates, and um, there's there's a set that work perfectly with 120, and a set that work perfectly with um, 35 mil, um, and 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 they have a vertical corresponding vertical gate that slots in. Um, but actually, if you if you take out the, I've got well, I'm playing with one in front of me now. If you take out the 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 120 gate, for example. Um, you can slot it into a different um, position, sort of further down. Um, so you've got kind of three three notches on the on the sort of sides. It's is is thirty five mil. Um, but if you went down to two notches, it might be that that's APS. I don't know. I don't know. But also, what I'm in plan- what I'm planning on doing is making it so. So at some stage in the not too distant future, I'm going to release all of the internal dimensions. I'm going to make the inside, basically the inside of the frame. I'm going to make that the internal dimensions of that open source and allow people to 3d print their own gates um, or invite people to 3d print their own gates and then submit those print files to me. So other people can print their own gates. So if somebody wants to make a particular holder for APS that will just slot into that, that frame, um, you know, I'm hopefully well. I'm going to be encouraging that, and then the popular, obviously, the popular gates. I can then look to have injection molded and make them available as well. Oh, that's that's that's, that's really really cool. I mean, I've got it. As I say, I've got it got it with me. Uh, you sent it up, kindly sent it up to me a, a couple of days ago, and I've been having a little play with it, and I think it works really well. Uh, yeah. Well, it's the thing is, it's it's as we were talking about before the show. It's not it's not it's not perfect, but the you know you, you know if you've got a particularly curly negative, for example, um, you do have to put a little bit of pressure on the on the on the gate. You know, if you because you can use it, it's got these little feet that slot in and sometimes pop out but, uh, annoyingly. But you know, they slot in, and you can put it in front of a lamp, and you can just take a fit photo of it with your with your iPhone if you just you know if you just want a you know just a quick low quality snap. But um, yeah, the other end of the spectrum, you can obviously use a copy stand and a, and a, and a light source. I'm starting down the road of developing a light source for it as well. But at the moment, I've got um, a Kaiser one that I, you know, just put it on the light source underneath, you know, in a in a stand, as I say. And then, yeah, you have to 
if you if you've got a curly negative, you have to sort of put a bit of put a bit of pressure on the on the gates with your hand to hold the negative um, the negative perfectly flat if it is curly. But the gates, as I said earlier, the gates do the job of of um, masking the masking the frame, which is the which is obviously the main thing. You don't want any kind of light leaking from around the edge of the frame because it can kind of sort of pollute the pollute the file. Yeah, yeah. Um, earlier on, I put a uh, a post up on Twitter uh, to say that we we're going to be having this uh, this this discussion today, and. Um, somebody by the name of Rogue Todd, uh, Tog, I should say, um, he asked a question um, about um, what our thoughts were on the film being placed directly upon the diffused light source surface, so, so to speak, uh, versus um, potentially having it raised away from it. Um, the, the point being is that there's the potential that when you're actually taking one of these photographs of a negative, which is by definition a macro shot, um, you can, if under some circumstances, you can actually get almost like a bleed through of whatever the texture is of what's directly under the negative. And this is something that I alluded to in some respects earlier on. Uh, when I was saying problems with light sources and diffusing light, um, because I was doing exactly this, and I was late. I was using tissue paper and normal paper and mm. all sorts of things to diffuse the light, and I could see the fibres of of whatever it was that I was putting underneath uh, the, the the film, and it was it was bleeding through into mm. into my shots, especially with um, it was more of a problem with uh, with slide film than it was with. Uh, with with negatives, but it it was still there. But my experience with um, using I mean using like an, an opal uh, diffused perspex material that you used in in this, um, mm. and I've I've not encountered that problem with that. And, and I don't know if uh, if anybody else has or Hamish. The the pic, the, the, the the material I use for the diffuser for the pixelator has got a. It's not. A sh it's not. A, it is a. It is a matte finish, but it's matte finishes to prevent um, uh, Newton rings. Um, but but it's more of a matte finish than a textured finish. I'd be. Uh, you know. I don't know what to what degree you would have to. As I said on Twitter, I think you would have. To, I've never ever seen the. Fi I've never ever seen the finish of Pixelator. Um, in the in the in the files that I've created, well, not not to my knowledge, have I seen the the, the texture of, of the of the diffuser in the in the files where I've I've digitised. I think you would be ha having to take, you know, lots and lots of very small macro frames and stitching them. But even then, I mean, it, as I say, it's a matte finish rather than a textured textured finish. Yeah. I would say. And that, and I think that's I was let's let's go on to a little bit about technique uh, now. Um, and because some people will just take a single shot of the negative, no matter what, what size of the negative it is, and other people will, will uh, stitch, stitch. Is that, was that Was that you, Hamish, then? Yeah, sorry, I dropped something on the floor. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so some people will take multiple shots and, and, and stitch them together, and uh, sometimes the size of the film the negative can can play a part in that um especially if you're using a larger negative perhaps you you want to capture as much detail that there is in the negative that you know using a full frame camera and you've taken a photograph of um of a medium format negative or a large format negative you're effectively binning a lot of information um 
and I'm, I'm just wondering if there's uh, going around this this virtual table if there's if there are any preferred uh, techniques for uh, for for digitising if anybody's got anything to add on that. Well, it's starting at my end of the spectrum because I'm I'm definitely one end of the spectrum with this. I don't. I, I've got a what is it? A <clears throat> Sony A seven R three. So what's that? Forty something megapixels, I think. Um, and I use that for digitising. Well, I don't. To be honest, I don't use Pixelator for thirty five mil. I only use it for medium format and, and large format. And I, I I use that single frame. Um, for large format um, because for me the the reason I shoot large format or would choose to shoot format large format is not just well it's not resolution um, specifically there's lots of other advantages to large format beyond resolution obviously the look of the images is different um, and the relative grain size is different so I've shot um, a lot of HB5 um, at, at 32, I want to say a lot, a few frames of HB5 at, at, at uh, 3200 uh, in large format. And it, the grain is just non existent because it, it's so much smaller relative to the size of the, the, size of the frame. Um, and when I'm digitizing, you know, as, as <laughs> I've recently told the whole world, um, I, you know, I, I don't. I get shot of my neck. Well, I don't actually don't do my large format negatives, but um, a lot of my negatives I I get rid of, um, because I just my file my photos just go on the computer anyway. I don't. It's not like I'm printing twenty six meters wide or anything like that. So I, I don't need that resolution. I think a lot of people feel that they need to have the ultimate in resolution from their film, but I I I'm not I'm not one of those people. It's it's a funny one, isn't it? About I mean, and you've you've talked about and written about this at, at, at length, and um, the, the resolution thing is is an interesting one, and also just you know you've digitised it and then you've done with it. I mean, there's and, and again, you I think you've talked about the potential archival issue with with doing that. The other the other one, of course, is like um, in the future. Um, is 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 the digitized image that you're taking now uh, going to be as good as you'll ever ever wish it to be? And the answer is possibly going to be yes. But I don't know. In in twenty years' time, you might want to go back to your, your negatives because they've invented something that we haven't thought about at the moment. That you can bring something, um, or you realise that you are actually capturing people's souls, and you can uh, give them back uh, by using this newer technology in twenty years' time. And but you won't you won't have those negatives there anymore. Uh, to, no, to, that's, to, we, we, that's, that's right. A, so when so when it's Blade Runner time, and you can you know scan things like that, and you can like see more than you want, you're out of luck. You're out of luck, Hamish. Yeah. Uh, oh, hang on. What? Let me just think about my standard response to this. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. I don't give Let's fun. go to the Hamish boilerplate. <laughs> don't give a shit. Could not give a shit. So the thing is, is I take I, you know, I, Johnny's been taking the piss out of me on social media for being somewhat of a nihilist when it comes to my attitude towards my my negatives and my photos. We believe in nothing, Lebowski. <laughs> um, 
I, I, I just don't, I just don't care. Like my, this is, you know, we're in a real danger of going down a, a, a slightly different path with this conversation now. I just don't care. I don't, you know, I take my photos, I digitize them, I stick them on Flickr, I stick a few of them in a in a photo album that I, you know, I make for my wife every Christmas, uh, and and after that, I, I don't care. You know, if in if in twenty years' time, scanning capability is so much higher for whatever reason, and we can see round corners or whatever in our photos, well. You know, whatever. I will have taken more photos when that happens, so I'll just scan those ones instead. But yeah, I probably shouldn't spend too much time dwelling on yeah. my attitude towards my negatives. It's, it does seem to be a conversation that gets me in oh, in trouble. Yeah. I just don't care. I just couldn't give a crap. Right. Okay. Well, uh, um, Nate, um, yes. have you got any preference in the way that you actually? digitize your uh, the, the the shot and the way in your, in your in terms of your actual method of taking the photographs and possibly actually the equipment you use as well yeah so first just on um the stitching thing it, it for me it just depends on the format um i've gotten to where with both uh six by six and six by seven i usually do a two-shot stitch and um especially with the with the six by six um, with with a different uh, dimension relative to the uh, dimension of the uh, of the digital camera, I feel like I'm I'm missing so much resolution that I could be getting. And uh, so for me, like it's it's really easy to just do two shots with a little bit of overlap, and those typically will merge pretty well. Whether you're using Lightroom to merge or Photoshop or something else, um, a two shot stitch is is usually very easy to merge and. Uh, you know, you can instantly double your, your, your resolution or your megapixels. Um, I've tried closer stitching. Um, I mean, I've tried like six shots of a six by six or six shots of a six by seven. And by that point it becomes really difficult and time consuming to stitch and can introduce a lot of distortions. Uh, so for me, it's just kind of a trade off between how much time do I want to spend on this and what's the payoff in terms of increased, uh, a clarity and resolution and for me most of the time the sweet spot is is a two-shot stitch yeah now you just mentioned distortion there and that's that's actually something i, I, I do want to touch base with you because one other method that i've used for uh, digitizing is using uh, a sly copying attachment attached to bellows and this is tends to be how i've been doing 35 mil but depending on the lens i would use i would actually get uh, distortion along the long edge of the uh, of, of of the um, effectively the inside of the slide um, holder, and that would change depending on the lens that I would use. And some lenses will be better at it than others. Um, and I'm just just wondering if you've got any tips on because you've obviously you've spoken to plenty of people who are doing this kind of thing. But I'm just wondering if you've got any, like favourite lenses or equipment in general. Um, well, in particular lenses anyway, that uh, seem to perform better than others. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things that can introduce distortion into the shot. Um, the, the first would be obviously if, if uh, your, your camera isn't in perfect parallel with your, with your surface that the film's on. Um, even if you use like a level on both surfaces, it can not be, it can be just a little bit off and that, um, especially if you're doing a two-shot stitch, just being a little bit off uh, will can throw things off considerably. I've actually started using, uh, I'll put a mirror underneath, uh, uh, kind of on the uh, on on the bed of my, um, 
uh, of my copy stand and I'll then uh, align it so that uh, w with my camera face straight down, I want the lens to be in the exact middle of the viewfinder, or in this case of the uh, of, of the preview screen. And once you get that to where it's right in the middle, the reflection of the lens itself, um, you know that you're perfectly parallel. Uh, that is, in my testing, that is the best way to make sure that everything is everything is parallel between your your, your camera and your surface. So having that perfect parallel uh, relationship is extremely important but also having the film completely flat will uh will also help mm -hmm. uh any kind of wrinkle or curvature in the film itself can uh can can lead to distortions but then also of course you have the, the lens itself has distortions uh so in negative lab pro one of the first things that it does is activates lightroom's own internal uh lens corrector so Lightroom has uh, a, a kind of a database of uh, lenses and um, uh, what kind of uh, correction you need to correct for distortion. And so uh, that's one of the first things that it, that it does. Now it doesn't always work if you're using any kind of um, any kind of like attachment or any kind of uh, uh, anything in between the, the the lens and the camera itself, or if it's a lens from a different manufacturer that 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 maybe you're having to use some kind of special contraption to get it to work on your camera, um, Lightroom won't recognize that lens. It won't be in the um, in the metadata of the of the raw file, and so you may have to do some um, some manual correcting of the distortions that are inherent in the lens. So you've got those three things: you've got the film being flat, you've got parallel surface. And you've got uh, correction on the lens itself. And if you have those three things, uh, you will usually end up with a pretty, uh, a, a, a pretty perfect uh, result. And the way that you can measure it is uh, what I'll do with my six by six shots when I'm when I'm testing this is I'll uh, I'll basically after doing it I'll go in and crop uh, a perfect square around the edges and see how perfect you know how perfect in alignment everything everything is so if i find out that my that my six by six isn't perfectly square afterwards i know that i've introduced um i've introduced some distortion to it in, in one of those ways there's some great tips there uh, especially that one with with the mirror because uh, ultimately as, as you're you know, being parallel is just so vitally important especially when you're dealing it at the macro level it's right. quite easy to to blame your lens uh, for introducing some kind of distortion where it actually may not be the lens. The lens might actually might be fine. I mean, there's a reasonable chance the lens will actually have so, some level of distortion, but you can, it's, it's, yeah, you could be, could be actually blaming the wrong thing because I, probably most people are listening to this show are adapting a lens to go on to it. So we won't be making use of the, the database on, on Lightroom. Um, so we'll be using all sorts of things. And, and I mean, the, method i tend to use is several extension rings with an enlarger lens on the end of it but there are some times where I'll, I'll be using a conventional uh, macro lens but at the level that you're talking about even if the the, the adapter that could introduce a, an amount of distortion it's, it's it's quite possible um another thing that i came across when i was using um bellows 
was the the adapter that I well still use for that matter. Um, when that, when I was actually taking the, the photograph, they, I had to correct it um, every single shot because it, it was always slanted to one side. And I think, mm. well, how can how can how can this be? You know, the, and then I looked at the camera, and the camera wasn't actually truly per, um, truly perpendicular and in line in every direction to to the to the bellows. It was actually canted off at maybe about you know uh, one, maybe even two degrees, and that was simply because the, the the manufacturer of the adapter had just made the thing work, and then attached the or not so much attached the then print the um the markings on after after it's been constructed and then they then use the the rings on the the bayonet part that get that attaches to the to the lens um turn that into the right orientation and 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 you're off to go and if you're just taking normal photographs it wouldn't be a problem but when you're actually attaching something to a bellows which which has to be in perfect alignment then mm. you're going to see that difference and that that's that stopped me using bellows for that reason. So I'm very, very happy to see this pixelator in front of it because at least I know I can get that thing perfectly straight. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you're exactly right. Like very small uh, discrepancies can, can lead to, you know, big changes when you're, when you're talking about something like, like a macro lens and digitizing with a digital camera. Um, so yeah, what, the more that, that you can do in, the setup to make sure everything is perfect the easier everything else will be right now once we've we've taken that photograph now um it then uh, i think it's fair to say it's best to be taken out in, in a raw format um and we've we've talked a, a fair bit about your, your, your software um and it it relies upon uh lightroom and i think we'll let's Put that to one side because I think we just need to touch upon that as a, as a slightly separate subject. But um, so you would then import it into, into Lightroom, um, and perhaps then you could just talk people through what the process is when they're using your your plugin. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the first thing you said about the importance of it being raw. I mean, it's absolutely essential that it's raw. If it's not raw, it it will not look right. And the reason for that is that when you look at the raw processing pipeline and you look at all the things that happen to your photo between, you know, just being uh, data and sensor levels to being a displayable image, there's a lot of stuff that in a typical pipeline is happening that was made for just regular positive digital photography. And those things will dramatically mess up uh, your ability to convert the negative. Um, so if you're, if you're right now just taking it with a, you know, taking a raw photo and bring it into Lightroom or Photoshop and you don't have something like negative lab pro, it's almost impossible to get the right colors because the, the raw profiles themselves are, uh, introducing distortions, both to the tones and to the colors. And, uh, you know, the, the, no matter almost what you do, you're not going to be able to undo some of those things because they're happening at a fundamental level before your other edits. So the first thing that Negative Lab Pro uh, does when you bring it in, um, well, well, let me back up. The first thing you should do when you bring it in is uh, I always recommend cropping it uh, so that you have uh, just the film part itself, just the actual exposure showing. And you can have uh, 
some of the border showing, but you definitely don't want to have um, non-film elements. So if you're using like the pixelator, you you wouldn't want to have the um, the black uh, border of the pixelator in in the shot because uh, that will actually be uh, something that that any piece of software, but, but negative lab pro will, uh, evaluate as thinking that it's part of the film. Um, so you want to crop that out. And then what you want to do is use the, um, the white balance selector tool in Lightroom and, um, sample a part off of the film mask. Actually, you can do that before you crop. I mean, otherwise you won't be able to see it, but crop, uh, but white balance off the film mask. And what that's doing is it, in most people think that that's color correcting the shot, uh, but it's not actually color correcting it. It's, it's just removing some of the uh, orange mask and uh, making it uh, easier for, for Lightroom to get down to the colors when, when you start converting in, in negative lab pro. I mean, basically the, the white balance changes in Lightroom are something that are happening fundamentally at the raw level before any of the other interpretations are happening. Um, so you, you'll want to white balance off of the, off of the mat, off, off of the, uh, yeah, off of the, uh, the border. Okay. So you've got that. And then you just bring up negative lab pro, uh, make a couple of selections in terms of what kind of emulation you want. Um, uh, and then there's a couple other options that, that, you know, are explained as a part of the, uh, as a part of the negative lab pro website that I don't have to get into. Um, but you'll basically then just hit convert and it will, do all of the kind of the hard stuff for you. So behind the scenes, it's actually going in and analyzing um, the, the shot itself in its raw form and analyzing the um, the colors, the tones, the mask. Um, it, it's, uh, it's doing some like auto color analysis. Uh, it's really kind of looking at, at all these different components and then spitting back to Negative Lab Pro uh, all these details about what it would recommend for the correction and then giving those corrective numbers to Lightroom as a program. And then Lightroom is making those adjustments. Um, so once you've done that, you'll come back and you'll have, uh, you know, in a couple, couple seconds, hopefully you'll have the initial conversion. And then from there, um, there are different options in terms of what kind of tone profile do you want? Is this something that you want to have a lot of contrast or something that you want to feel very flat um, do you want this to, uh, to be, uh, bright? Do you want this to be dark? Um, there are different auto color options, so you can choose to, uh, use, uh, an auto color warming algorithm, um, that's specifically designed for, uh, for negative film. Uh, it's, it's something that I built that's, that's kind of like Photoshop's auto color, except it's, uh, made specifically for film. Um, and yeah, you can kind of go through and make all these fine detailed edits on what you want the final shot to look like. Um, you can also do all this in batch. So if you have a whole roll of film or multiple rolls of film, um, or even thousands of, of, of shots that you want to convert at once, you can just select them all in Lightroom and convert them all at once. And I'll actually go through one by one and do an independent analysis on every single one of those, uh, every single one of those frames. Um, I know people who, who do, uh, digital conversions for a living that are using 
negative lab pro and uh, actually a guy on the, on our Facebook group just the other day was like, Hey, I just got a, a client that wants something like 10,000, uh, negatives converted, you know, thank goodness I can just do it all at once at negative lab pro. Um, but you know, you can, you can do 10,000, you do just one. Um, it'll, it'll go through and analyze each one either way you do it. And, uh, the cool thing about the process is that everything is non-destructive. So the original raw negative is always there, um, in the image and, you know, you can change the white point and the black point. You can intentionally clip stuff or not clip stuff. Nothing is changing in the underlying file. Um, so you can always come back. You can always pick up and re-edit wherever you left off. Negative Lab Pro remembers whatever edits you've made to the file. So, you know, say you come back and you want it, you know, the brightness before you had it plus five and you want it to be plus 10, you open it back up and it's already a plus five and you just move it to plus 10. Um, there's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's basically yeah. the, uh, the, the workflow. And there's, there's so many other things that, that, uh, the photographers have asked for that I, that I put into it, like, um, the ability to do film metadata. So if you want to organize, um, and, and, and put in, you know, what film you used and what, um, what, uh, original lens and body and, uh, all this information about the original shot or the, the way that you digitized it, you can add that all in the metadata and, and have Lightroom organize or sort or search through all those different things. I mean, it's, it's, there's really a lot you can do with it. I, I've I've mentioned it a few times now. I think it's an absolutely incredible piece of software. It's 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 easy to use. Um, you've got information on your website as well as to what, what different functions do, um, and it's and it's clear that it's you know, you've already said it there, but it's also clear anyway as a user that it's constantly updated and being developed and made more user friendly as 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 you as it goes along. Um, one of the the things that I've, I noticed with it when I first used it um, was uh, I would you know, press the button and I'd just let it go off and just do do it do its stuff, and it will convert um, the let's let's say it's a color uh, a color image, and um, and it, and you press OK and it does 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 all its stuff converts negative, and then when if you want to actually make adjustments to it, uh, I'm thinking okay I'll do that now and I'll just go into Lightroom and make my adjustments and it's still a negative. Um, so right. your sliders are doing the wrong thing, which you, you can you can deal with that. You know that's, that's you know you can do it that way. But then I've realised well actually I can just go I can reopen your app and go back into your app and then do, make the changes in a more intuitive way. Um, just just using your app your your app. Yeah, I mean I I would there. I would recommend making as many of the edits as you can inside the app. Um, just because it's uh, it's a pure uh, pipeline, it's it's uh, you know adjusting uh, all, all the things for you, but doing it in a way that that you're not, that doesn't have some of the magic. And you know, Lightroom some of the, some of the controls have uh, some magic built into them that were built specifically for uh, interacting with just regular digital shots. And that magic can actually be distortive when it comes to working with. Uh, colors from from negative so it's it's better to uh do as much as you can in terms of color correction and tonal correction inside of negative lab pro but if if you want to do everything in lightroom you can i would just recommend that you there's a feature called uh make a positive copy 
I would just recommend making a, a quick positive copy, and then you can work off the positive copy. I've not uh, I've not seen that, but that's that's really good that it's there because there are, there are some times where I want to do something ever so slightly different, and uh, and well, I, the way I've been doing it, I've been uh, converted, I've been knocking it into Lightroom. Uh, no, sorry, in, into uh, Photoshop, where I've been actually probably getting rid of a bit of dust. But when you when you save that, it saves it as a positive, and then you can, you've got all the all the functions available in in the normal way. But doing it in the way that you just said there will be just so much easier. Uh, yeah, you can do it right when you're inside of the plugin uh, towards the bottom before you hit apply. There's a little checkbox that says like make copy copy, and you can choose a JPEG or a TIFF, yeah. and you can choose whether you want it to be in its own folder or whether you want it to be um uh to be in a stack with the original and yeah you just you just check that and when you hit apply it will just automatically make a positive copy for you and put it right there next to your original negative um, another another thing I want to say. I mean, one of the, yeah, the the biggest single feature of, of this is is just how well, <clears throat> excuse me, how well it, it converts um, color negative images into something that you can recognize and you think, yeah, that's what I wanted it to look like. But the the other benefit and and really it's it's the benefit that I make mo more use of because I I predominantly shoot uh, black and white, is that I find that. If I was to import, I mean, generally speaking, it's not—it's not that it's, well, it's not difficult at all to invert a black and white image uh, with with most pieces of software, and, and yeah, and I, I use Lightroom and maybe a bit of Photoshop, and I can I can get my black and white images to look as I like them to do without using the software, but that would mean that I would invert it, maybe do a few things to it, and then probably run it through Silver Effects or something like that. And then when I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to give Negative Lab Pro a, a go with, with a black and white image. You know, it's not what I've got it for, but I'll give it a go. And hey, presto, it'll come out like I want it to, which amazed me. And I think, Hamish, I think you've, you've had a similar kind of experience. Yes. Well, I, funny enough, last time I shot some 5.4, um, I, I did exactly that. Just done, <coughs> chuck them in to my whatever version two thousand seven hundred eighty three of Pixelator, <laughs> and uh, stuck them, chuck them in Lightroom, and, and actually just didn't even think about um, using Native Lab Pro, and was faffing around. So you can invert the curve and faffing around doing that, and I could not get anywhere with them. And I actually just walked away from them really frustrated. I thought oh, I must have the negatives are crap or something. Anyway. Next time I, um, I can't remember how it came out. I thought, well, I'll, uh, one way or another, I'll just try it, try it in Negative Lab Pro. And just a couple of clicks, and I was and I absolutely gobsmacked by the difference in the quality. And um, it was pretty much the end result, it was pretty much the end photo I was looking for without having to do anything. It was just there. And I'd, I'd spent ages and ages and ages in Lightroom trying to get something close to it. So, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever wizardry is going on in, in, in negative lab pro it, 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 it as, as you talked about earlier Nate, and i won't name any of the soft software is but the the the, the, the the sort of alternatives to, to to negative lab pro just unfathomably complicated and so many steps to get something close to a, a result that works or not even close in in in, in my experience the, the, the sort of learning curve is is so steep, whereas what Negative Lab Pro does is obviously there's a lot of wizardry going on, but it 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 also massively softens that learn that learning curve. 
And as I said, going back to a point I was making a minute ago about the sort of democratization of this process, is that that's something that I think is really important at the moment as film photography is not showing any signs of getting any less popular, but all of the other types of digitization, as we've already talked about, are showing signs of becoming less practical. And whereas digitization with a digital camera, on the other hand, is um, going in the other direction. Now, with products like Negative Lab Pro, it's we're getting to the stage that actually it's almost becoming the the easiest, the least, the path of least resistance. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, my 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 goal is to uh, is to make it so that you know people more often than not have that experience where the where the one click gets them something that feels like the final. Um, but that also there's enough editability to where if it isn't something that feels like final, you can still get it there. Uh, the really remarkable thing to me about negatives is just the inherent amount of editability that that's, that's in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are so many decisions that go into that. But, you know, when I, when I first started doing this, my, my kind of gold standard was thinking about, well, how can I make this look like a frontier or how can I make this look like an Aritu? And pretty clear, you know, I, I heard from a lot of, a lot of users, well, that's not what I want my negative to look like. But to me, that's not what a negative look like. A, a negative looks like, you know, what I get out of this piece of software or this drum scanner, or, um, you know, a negative needs to, needs to look like, like, uh, like accurate colors as opposed to the colors that you would get out of, out of one of these pieces of software. So um, it's, a, it's all a bit of a, 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 sorry to interrupt. It's all a bit of a minefield that one, isn't it? Because what, what a negative act, what, a, what a negative actually looks like or what should be, there's always regardless of, you know, cause you can, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I would imagine there's a different interpretation that goes on based if you use a Fuji camera compared to using a Sony camera, for example. I would imagine that the, the outcome is is different, is it? Or do you? Ha- how does that work? Well, I mean, when it, when it comes to, um, to the digitization process, I mean, I try to keep things as normalized as possible so that people have similar experiences. And a lot of that happens at the um, camera calibration prof- uh, profiles. It happens at the raw level. Um, I mean, there are de- there are inherent differences between the cameras, um, and there are you know edge cases where certain colors look a little bit different depending upon the camera. Even doing as much as you can within the within the raw profiles. Um, but, so yeah, uh, of course, you said earlier on you started. So this is because, of course, if your background it was originally was in camera profiles, then of course you're combating some of that at that level, aren't you? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. And I mean, there's there's so much that you can do with with camera profiles um, that it, there's almost no information about anywhere, which is why I made the course to begin with, because I had to, I mean, I just basically was reading through original documentation. No one, no one can really teach you about this stuff. Uh, you just have to like read all the documentation. Um, but there's still, I think that there's actually still some room for me to improve some of these camera profiles uh, based on um, based on just how much uh, there is available inside of the 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 D and G specification. It's crazy, really. It's the funny thing is about this. I mean, I had I had a lot of conversations um, with with regards to using my Naritsu and getting the best results. 
out of that um and the 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 sort of profiling that in my head there's always some man in or you know tapping away on a computer somewhere in japan coming up with some kind of you know profile that is this is what kodak portra 400 looks like or should look like when you put it into an aritsu scanner um as far as I understand, the, the Naritsu's like they understand, they, they know that you know, you put the, it knows the film that's going into it, if you see what I mean. Um, but it becomes such a minefield, and I could never really. My process when I'm digitizing is, is just to make a photo that looks how I want it to look, and I've always taken that approach. Like for me, it, it, it does almost doesn't matter what camera it's shot on or what film it's shot on, the end product is something that. It's how I want it to look, if you see what I mean. Um, so I kind of just use the tools at my sort of fingertips to get to what I want it to look like, rather than whereas what you're talking about actually is sort of no- normalising everything to the point that the output is as accurate to what the film is. Well, there's the film is going in at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of different ways to think about normalization, but I mean, I, I want someone to have the same experience with Negative Lab Pro, whether they're digitizing with a with a, you know a Fuji XT T2 like I do, or a Sony like you do, or an Epson V600 or V700. Um, uh, so, trying to normalize the input to some to some degree to where uh, the output will be similar across those things is um, is is definitely something that I've been that that is built into it. Um, beyond that, though, there's I, I feel like everyone comes to film photography with a different expectation as to what film should look like. And for some people, that expectation is based upon what they've seen done at a lab, and for some, it's based on you know what they've seen in print. Um, <coughs> for some, it's based on what they've seen on Instagram or yes. on. Um, uh, you know, on, 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 uh, the Reddit analog group, uh, there, there's all different kinds of expectations that people bring and, you know, I'll get people ask me all the time, like, Hey, like, uh, you know, I, I did this shot and this is with, uh, since still 800 T is this what's, is this what it should look like? And I'm like, well, I mean, you took it with that. That's that, that's what it looks like. If you want it to look different, you can, you, I mean, you can edit it different and like, well, is it, is it supposed to be, you know, this, this cool or this this green or this blue or this warm i'm like well that's i mean that's really up to you isn't it um i mean if you want it to feel blue uh which can often happen with 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 cinestill and certain lighting then you know just go with it don't fight it but if you want to make it feel warm well you you know there's that that latitude in in editing to do that and i think some people are afraid to edit um because they feel like it's it's yeah. the purity of you know they just want it to look like the film that's like well that's not really how how negatives were designed or how they work it's a strange narrative isn't it that one i, I come across that i wrote a blog post about that and about how you should you know they're your photos <laughs> right and, and if you want them to look however you want to make them look then that that should be your your prerogative but there is a lot there are a lot of people out there who kind of argue the case for and the, the funny thing is is they argue the case for photos looking like they should do from x y or z film but then when you see the results 
they don't look like that. <laughs> yeah. what that film actually, what I think of that film as looking like. And, right. and, I, and I've seen a lot of results from Portrait 400, for example, which I know um, in my experience, Portrait 400 is, um, you, you, you know, it can look everything from, you know, slightly pastely to, um, really bright and colourful, depending on how it's exposed and all that sort of stuff. But you see some people's results, and they're all flat and muddy. And you think, well, and and they're saying, oh, this, you know, this is straight from the scan. And you think, well, hang on a minute, you're doing yourself a disservice there because you're spending a lot of money on on a film that has the capacity to look so much more beautiful, and you're producing results that look flat and muddy and crap. Um, but but equally, that's their prerogative, <laughs> so, right? Right. If that's what they if that's what they want, then exactly, that's then more power to them. But it's it's yeah, it's a very it's, a, it's an odd it's an odd it's an odd conversation. It's a sort of yeah. Johnny, Johnny, were you were you just trying to get in there? No, no, I was just listening. Along. I mean, I, I agree with uh, what you know both of you guys just said. It it's. <laughs> it, it's not so much about how it's supposed to look. It's how you want it to look. I mean, you can, you know, you can go in any number of directions from a piece of film. It, it's not necessarily going to look one way or the, or the other, depending on what you do with it. Right. I mean, if you have it done, done at a lab and scanned at a lab, it's probably going to have a prototypical look. That is what people think of as a certain film stock looking like, right? Because, that's what labs do. They, they produce consistent results. But I mean, if you're doing it on your own, it, it's going to look however you want it to look in the end. Mm. The, 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 I had a, I sort of went through a few labs a few years ago and, um, there was a UK photo lab at the time. Now I think they're Canadian photo lab. They moved, moved abroad. Um, but their results, I could tell, I can't remember, Christian, he runs it. I think his name is, and I could tell his results, um, regardless of the film, I could tell his results when I saw them on the internet because they had a signature, he, almost his signature tonality to them. Mm. Um, and then um, at AG Photo Lab, for example, was another one. AG, if you send Portrait 400 to AG, in my experience, almost invariably comes out very contrasting um, with with quite often sort of reds that are kind of clipped to magenta if you're not if you're not careful, and that's something that happens with Naritsu. So my, uh, I'd have to be very careful with reds with Naritsu because they kind of clip to that sort of lost red magenta look. Um, but then um, the other big name was Richard Photo Lab, um, mm-hmm. and what's his name? Jose? What's his name? Jose? Oh, is it Jose? Of, um, with the um, Fuji 400H? Yeah. The, uh, is he Mexican? Uh, um, wedding photographer who was shooting Fuji 400H. And and then what, what he was doing became enormously, like, it, that was, it, it was so popular for a while. And then there was a look that Richard Photo Lab were producing with 400H and then another look that Richard Photo Lab were producing with Portrait 400 that all of a sudden was just, that was the, that was the, the look for those two films. Um, uh, and people's, um, and that was what you know everybody expected. Um, but I don't know. You, you couldn't really say that either was right or wrong, especially you know compared compared it to UK Photo Labs response, uh, you know results at the time, and they were completely completely different. So, well, I, I wonder that that you know, a lot of the attitude towards um, 
how a, how a, an image should should look um, is based upon well Kodak or Fuji or whoever they they made this film they made it to a, a specific way to handle colors in a very specific way and we are potentially introducing different ways of interpreting the the final result now is is there don't, don't the film manufacturers give the information out as to how a red is meant to look or or, or any of the, or any of the tonality isn't isn't there some, isn't there like a go-to place to get the definitive reference colors and then and then you you work from that point backwards is that is, is that too simplistic is it does it exist and the manufacturers give out uh, technical spec sheets and those spec sheets have uh, characteristic curves in them mm -hmm. um, but it's Un, it's it's still unclear to me that um, uh, that uh, for instance uh, professional scanners or lab scanners are actually always referencing that. Um, for instance, if you look at like a, a, a frontier that is uh, processing medium format, uh, it has no way of knowing what film you're putting into it, and there's no way for you to tell it. And I my my belief is that most if not all of the uh lab scanners are relying more on analysis than they are on um uh, the spec sheets uh, or any kind of like oh this is kodak or oh this is fuji um i think that the the films themselves have characteristics and then the scanners themselves have characteristics and so when you see like a kodak film through a fuji frontier you're getting the, both of those characteristics are, are coming through along with the interpretations or the edits from the operator. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a mix of, of, of those yeah. three things less than it is like, okay, this is like the characteristic curve of Kodak. And therefore this is the exact right interpretation. Yeah. I, su I suppose where this is all coming back to is, is when, when film was, uh, and well, still be made now, obviously, but uh, when it was, pre-digital for most of its life and it was designed to be printed in a in a dark room and i assume you would get very specific settings and ways of calibrating your your dark room equipment so that it came out in the in the way that kodak said it should do or fuji or whoever it is uh as designed it so i I'm, my thinking is that a a highly skilled um, darkroom technician would actually produce the image that it's the the, the neutral image I, I should say the reference image that uh, the even, Weber wanted even yeah. that is assuming perfect exposure well it, and, it, and lighting well and even before that it's assuming it, oh yeah. it's assuming back in the day if it was a good lab that their scanners were linearized and their processors were calibrated so you'd have to start with that before anything could happen because those are the only th two things you can control I was, at the I was, lab. I was thinking from a from a pure wet printing method. That's what I'm rather. That's that's what I'm that's what I'm talking about because the film, if it's customer film, it's however they exposed it, right? But if you're running it through, a, if you're running it through a processors that have been calibrated, and then you're running. And then you're running it through a scanner that's been linearized. And then if you're further running the print through a processor, a, you know, a print processor that's also been calibrated, that's how they got reproducible, consistent results 
across the board, regardless of how the customer film showed up at the lab. Right. I think that the number of labs that still function that way are, are minuscule. And I, and I think what Nathan is saying is much more on target, which is that you've basically got, you know, people running them through the scanners and it's all on a, it's on a, it's on a per item per scan basis, right? It's, it's nothing is probably linearized that at, to that great a degree anymore at just about any lab that's going on. So the best you can do is that you've got a machine that takes that film and is working on it in sort of a case by case basis. Right. And, but even those machines should be linearized to a certain degree that they're producing, you know, reproducible results with, you know, any number of rolls of film. Um, but you're, I, I guess that's the, the difference is that you're, you're talking about really two different eras of um, color photography. Cause we're really talking about color here. Right. Yeah. Um, th- th- it's, it, it's a little difficult because there just really aren't a lot of labs left that do things at that, at such a high degree. Um, so I, I think it's hard to, it's hard to make comparisons to back when, you know, back when labs did that by design, that's, that's how they function. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I've, I've just looked at the clock and I realize that the Hamish hasn't got a huge amount of time left with us. Um, and I think that's probably a good time to start winding, winding things down as well. Um, although there is one very, very quick question, if I may ask it, um, if there are any quick tips on assessing, getting the correct exposure when you're digitizing using a, uh, a digital camera and you're taking a photograph of your negative, because that's something I find quite tricky. And sometimes it doesn't seem to matter whether I'm giving it a longer exposure or a shorter exposure, because I always seem to end up with the same exposure at the end of it. Um, so are there any quick tips on assessing the, the correct exposure when taking a photograph of a, uh, a negative? Um, well, I would say that the most important the, the first most important thing I would say is is to whatever exposure you choose is to keep that exposure through the entire roll, um, mm-hmm. and the, the the reason for that is is uh, it, in 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 future uh, references it will make uh, the digitization process easier or better. Um, as an example, I'm working right now on uh, a, a new feature in Negative Lab Pro where it'll it'll basically act more like a, a lab scanner where you can define a role. So you can say, hey, this is a role. And it'll be able to use uh, the analysis from the other shots in the role to, to give a better uh, determination of what that particular, uh, how, how that particular uh, shot should be interpreted. Um, as an example, if you took, you know, if you took a sh- like a single shot of a, uh, that was just of a red wall and then a single shot of a blue wall and a single shot of a green wall, each of those shots individually would be hard to interpret. But if you had reference to all three, it would make the interpretation process a lot easier. Um, and if you don't have the same exposure throughout the whole role, like say you had, you just had like aperture priority mo- mode and, uh, you know, bumped up the, um, uh, the, you know, said that that you wanted to be a little bit overexposed versus versus what it, it was supposed to be um having having that slight variance in between them will um will will cause some issues um so that's the first thing the second thing is uh if you want to get the most information uh it's best to expose to the right of the histogram and 
the reason for that is because the, the sensors in the camera are um, are linear, and so there's more information. Mm -hmm. There's more stops of information in right. Um, the the right half of the histogram than in the left half of the histogram. That's something that's kind of unique to 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 this process. Um, so I usually try to go maybe one stop to the right of of the center uh, or of where it says it should be, um, and then just keep it you know locked at that for the for the rest of the roll. Um, you have to be careful though that you don't push too hard. Uh, if you go too far to the right, you risk uh, clipping sensor data. Even if it's not showing you as clipping sensor data, you could be clipping uh, some of the, the pre-white balance sensor data. And also kind of unique to, to Lightroom is that they have some roll off that happens in the highlights of the raw when it's, when it's being converted. And so that can actually, um, they can actually cause some issues because it'll roll off, you know, say the highlights in the, the, the red channel, um, but not in the blue channel. And so you end up with that affecting your color balance when you do the conversion. Um, so, so don't, don't expose to the right, but don't push too hard and keep it the same for the entire role. Mm -hmm. And th those, those people that don't use histograms, uh, exposing to the right means. Exposing to the right means that if, if you look at the histogram and you look at it, uh, you look at the, the kind of the, the bulk of the, of the histogram, um, kind of a, a typical proper exposure would be for the bulk of the histogram to be somewhere uh, the bulk of the peak. Uh, to be somewhere in the middle and exposing to the left would mean that it would be like underexposed a little bit. So the bulk of the histogram would be to the left. Um, exposing to the right means you just expose it a little bit longer, um, get a little bit more information um, so that the, the, the bulk of the, of the, of the peak that you see in the histogram is happening just a little bit to the right of the center. Fantastic. That's, that's, that's great. Um, I'm uh, Hamish. Have you got to run very, very quickly? No, no, I'm probably all right for another 10 minutes, although I have been looking at my watch and then a minute ago realised that my watch was 10 minutes slow. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's happened. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, but yeah, no, I'm all right for a few more minutes. No, that's okay. It was, it was just whether I uh, was going to um, do the close down slightly differently. But um, okay. Well, I think... I think we've pretty much covered most of the things there. Um, I don't know if I don't know if uh, if Perry's still with us. He's on. He's, he's been on mute for. Uh, no, no, I'm just still listening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Perry. Yeah, with with his with his with the scanner and. Uh, the, the, I'll tell you the one thing we haven't talked about. Yeah, um, and that's um, it's the difference between something like pixelator and um, negative supply, uh, and the other one, which I can't remember the name of, I think the German one. Anybody can remember the name of it, then that would be great. But there's, obviously, there's the, the spectrum between um, the you know the, the difference between what what my forty mm. quid product offers and the hundreds of pounds that you could spend on something at a negative uh, you know a negative supply product. Have we got time for that? Yeah, well, you're, you're you're in more of a hurry than we are, so yeah, go for it. Well, I was just going to say, so obviously. Um, I mean, I, I've been chatting to the guys from Negative Supply recently, and people, a couple of people have joked about that. Obviously, we, we should be arch enemies, but I, I totally don't. I totally disagree with that. Um, my my pixelator is it is a entry level product. It's always been about it being an entry level thing, as we've talked about. You know, sometimes with, you might have to you might you might have to hold the gates. You know, if you want it, rip her, the negative perfectly flat, if you've got a curly negative. You might have to hold the gates down and things like that. Um, you know, it, it, it is. 
it is a 40 quid thing that's designed for all of the different sizes of, you know, common sizes of negative from 35 mil up to, up to five by four. Um, then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got negative supply guys and what they've done, which as far as I can tell from what I've seen is, uh, you know, it's an extremely high end product. Uh, you know, there's one that's designed for 35 mil. There's one that's designed for one, uh, one twenty. Um, and it's a hell of a lot more precise. Uh, and once it's in place, you know, with mine in between each frame, it's a bit of a fiddle. You have to you have to sort of lever up the top of the um, the frame to 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 loose, you know, to slacken off the hold on the negative, and then and then pull it through, and then push it back down again. And of course, that whole process can move the whole thing around on the on the on the um, on the surface. Whereas with uh, negative supply, it's got a little roller that you that you turn it and it pulls the film through, which obviously means that you don't. You're not, you know, you're not moving anything necessarily. It's all kept in exactly the same place. Um, so yeah, I suppose that's it really. It's it's there's there's a you know, and even you know, you can spend as you said earlier, you can spend an absolute fortune on a on a high, you know, a ridiculously expensive Kaiser copy stand, and you know, you could end up spending, you know, if you bought a, you know, I imagine there's some people out there digitising with medium format digital cameras. You could spend absolute fortune on a setup like this at one end of the spectrum, or you can use, you know, um, Pixelator and, you know, even obviously we haven't mentioned um, the FilmLab app um, as well. Yeah. That's another, another option. Um, you know, the results from that aren't, aren't going to be, you know, with an iPhone and FilmLab app, they're not going to be <laughs> as good as you can get with a uh, you know, I don't know Fuji GFX 100 or whatever it's called, and uh, uh, and uh, well, they're going to be good, uh, good, good enough. Supply. Yeah, if if that's your method of of, of digitising, and ultimately that's that's again, it's it's more of a an Instagram kind of thing, mm. and it's going to be perfectly adequate for that. Yeah, and I, I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that 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 a lot of what we've just talked about makes what we're talking about doing here sound very complicated and very onerous and you know there's but actually it, it doesn't it doesn't need to be at all you can just get a pixelator and um and 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 uh and film lab app and and stick pixelator in front of a window and just take a snap um and there's no you know you, the results might not be as perfect as you can get but you get our result that's as you say shareable on um, shareable on uh, on Instagram and, and the Lightroom mobile apps, you know, pretty good. You can do a little quick inversion on there, and it works fine as well. If you don't even have, you don't even have to have um, FilmLab apps. So there's lots of different. And this was my my point about I wanted to democratize this process. For me, it's what what I've got here. Hopefully, is a is a is a is a is a, is a, is a sort of a, a you know, and you can use it. I, I use I use mine and, and get really good results. Um, but you can just use it in a really kind of entry level way. Well, that's, I mean, that's the great thing about uh, DSLR scanning, right? It, is it's modular and, you know, you can, you can develop a, a, on a, on a budget or you can spend a fortune on it and mm. you know, get different results and you can start on a budget and then slowly upgrade it over time by, you know, upgrading individual components, uh, which is something, you know, you can't do with a scanner. Um, and, I also think it shows, you know, I think it's a good sign that there's enough interest in the market that there's multiple products coming out. Mm. And that shows that the the market itself 
is growing. I mean, you had a you had a very uh, successful Kickstarter campaign, and uh, so did so did Negative Supply, and uh, I, I think that that's I think that that's great. That shows that there are people who are interested at entry level and people who are interested in you know paying a lot of money. Mm. Um, so that's that. I, I think that we'll actually. I think we'll see more of that. We'll see more components coming out. We'll see more pieces of software coming out. And, you know, those, those are good things because it means the market is growing. So all of us are going to grow. Yes. And it means that the future of shooting film is more stable than it has been rather than less stable, which is where it felt like, you know, when, you know, when companies are, for example, you know, Epson Scan. It doesn't. What is it? Epson Scan? Doesn't work with latest version of Catalina or whatever it is on the on the Mac. Well, they have Epson Scan two now, which right, works okay. Catalina. Fine, but you know, there's all but these. All these they didn't, and, 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 and you know, loads of people using Packons, which, as you say, you have to use with bloody Windows XP, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 ridiculous, really. But I write a little post about this on DP Review, and don't read the comments. But um, the the. <laughs> My point of the post that I wrote for for them was that um, film photography and digital photography, you know, people used to argue about, you know, which is better. Um, It's such a non-argument now, not because one won or the other, but because actually the the sort of technologies are are coming together and people who shoot, people who, a lot of of people who shoot film now are people who also shoot digital. So, Right. And, the, and, the same, and the same technologies that, that, you know, the same digitization of everything that, that, that caused film to become less prominent are now making it, you know, more prominent again because yes. of things like YouTube channels and Instagram and people seeing, you know, other people shooting film and, and how much of a fun experience it can be and how great the results can be. Um, so just, I, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting that the same things that, that caused film to decline are now causing it to, to, I think, uh, reemerge. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I was trying to say in my DP review article. Don't read the comments. Everybody disagreed. I've never said, I've never, I, I just sat absolutely gobsmacked. I think to be honest, I think about of, of all of the people that commented on that, on my, on my article on there, I think only six of them actually read what I said. Read what I said. The rest of them just ended up arguing with each other about which was best film or digital, which is just absolutely ridiculous. But uh, I, ju- I just want to, uh, on the subject of democratization and access to, to, to things, um, we've we haven't actually uh, touched upon the fact that uh, well, one of the issues with the with the Negative Pro Lab app is that it's tied to Lightroom, and a lot of people aren't very happy with the subscription model with Lightroom and so on. But there is a way outside of subscription that um, Nathan, so- Nathan Software does work, and that's with, uh, is it uh, Lightroom 6, is it Nathan? That's right. Yeah, it works with Lightroom 6. Lightroom 6 was the, uh, was the last version of Standalone, and it was the first version of uh, uh, it was the first version of Lightroom that supports the kind of things that, that, that I'm doing with Negative Lab Pro. So, uh, yeah, so you can get a standalone copy of uh, Lightroom 6. I don't think you can get it from their website anymore, but you may, uh, if you do a little bit of searching, uh, you should be able to find uh, a way to get a license. Yeah, 
yeah, it's it's definitely out there. So uh, um, when when you told me about that the other day, that made me feel a lot happier. So that's that's what, when I've talked to people about doing this show and, and 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 talking about your software. That's always been the biggest single point that comes up. You know, they say yeah, it's great, but I can't use it because I'm not I'm not subscribing to Adobe and all that kind of stuff. So you know, there is that potential that you can get in there and just have that standalone piece of software and do all the all the wonderful things that your software does. That's right. Yeah. And, and just to address two other things real quick that, that, that I get asked about almost every day. Uh, Capture One is a great piece of software, but it doesn't have the the, the right kind of uh, plugin environment that I would need to be able to make this. So as it is currently, I can't integrate this with Capture One, although I'd love to. Um, maybe one day I will. Uh, and in terms of like a standalone, everybody asked me about a standalone and I may still make a standalone version of this at some point, but the the issue is, I mean, right now the great thing is is that you've got you know a multi billion dollar company developing great raw processing software, and with Negative Lab Pro, it takes that and makes it a perfect environment for your film. If I were to go and make a standalone, um, it would be incredibly less full featured than what you're able to do with a combination of Lightroom and Negative Lab Pro. Uh, so it'd be more difficult to develop, and it would do way 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 less. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, that, that would, that would be the drawback of going standalone. A lot of the things that, you know, you take for granted inside of Lightroom, I would have to build from scratch and I'd probably spend more time trying to build those things than I would just being able to focus on improving things like the conversion algorithm. Yeah. Right. Now, um, Hamish has got has absolutely got to fly. So hey, Hamish, um, if this might be a good time for you to say goodbye and to any shout outs you might want to do, and also to direct people at all the things that you do. <laughs> it's not all the things I do. <laughs> um, the, the, well, the, the thing I've moved, by the way. So sorry if I sound echoey and weird now. And um, the, the the thing I was going to say on that last point is that um, the Negative Lab Pro. It, it, the, the fact that it works with Lightroom and Lightroom is a subscription, so it, all of these things. Well, it, it, it's <laughs> complaining about that is it just seems a bit daft because it's kind of just tough. <laughs> it's like you you want the capability. You can't ha you can't you know Nate is clearly genius, but you know you can't expect people can't expect that. Do you know what I mean? you're breaking breaking up really badly there plus there's also i, I can hear people shouting at you uh, as well <laughs> our, li our listeners are up in arms uh, okay. of what you're saying there um we sort of get what you're saying but there, there are plenty of people that don't take that view in in terms yeah. of uh, at the end of the day if you can if you've got a piece of if you've got a, a, a way of processing your your your, your software your, your your images um and you it, whatever you, you need relatively minimal functionality um, or functionality that was available in Lightroom as a standalone product on Lightroom 6 then and they don't need anything that uh, all the creative cloud uh, would, would give you on a subscription model then I can understand why people are a little bit upset about it but, but yeah but my point is, is being being upset with a company like Adobe for going down the subscription road is just you know pointless yeah what's what's your upsetness going to achieve <laughs> right. which is which is and why upset, and, and equally being upset at nate for not creating a standalone yeah. product well again i mean you know the guy has done something incredible for this um for, for this you know for this community 
um, in terms of what he's achieved already. Give give the guy a break. If he can't make a standalone product, well, you know, <laughs> he's a one man band doing something awesome. Jesus, you know, it's not it's not fair to expect that much more from him. So. My point is, I suppose, you know, there are other options. If none of the other options work for you and you, and you want the absolute best, well, you just have to subscribe to Adobe and, 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 um, and, 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 and get his software. I've seen people complain. I've seen people complaining about the fact that it costs what it does, this software. It just, it really irks me. It irks me that somebody puts so much effort and time there. And if you search Negative Lab Pro on the internet, you search Negative Lab Pro, the first word that comes after it is crack or hack or whatever. It really pisses me off. <laughs> just think, Christ, this guy has put, you know, I'm talking about it as if he's not here now. He's put all of this time and effort into this. He deserves the cash. Anyway, sorry, I've got ranty again. I have not to get ranty. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell, tell him, Hamish, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, you, you tell him, tell him. Yeah, well, I will do. You know, give me another <laughs> half an hour. If I didn't have to go and get my kid from this, or I, I could, you know, I could go full bore on this. It just really, it really, I don't know, it really hurts, it really hurts me. Um, but yeah, the, the point is, is yes, it works Lightroom 6, but I imagine it works better with the, with the latest version of Lightroom. Is that right, Nate? Uh, uh, y- yes and no. I mean, it, it works. Things like lens, lens profiles, for example. Yeah, like, like Lightroom. Lightroom works. I mean, the newer versions of Lightroom, I think, work better. They've added some really nice, some really mm-hmm. nice things, and it's possible that future versions of Negative Lab Pro will make use of features that aren't available in Lightroom Six, um, but would still, you know, find find ways around it as best I could. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on the latest version of Lightroom, Lightroom Classic version. Was it nine point two now? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I love it. And Adobe has been super awesome. Um, I mean, there are some people at Adobe that have reached out to me. And, you know, when I when I have an issue or find a bug or something, I, I tell them and they fix it. I mean, it's they've, they've been very, very supportive. Um, so I understand that people don't like subscriptions and um, people don't like Adobe. But but I actually, I really love it. I really mm, love Lightroom. I'm, I'm the same. And I suppose my point is, is if you want something to be as good, you know, you, you have to pay for stuff. This is uh, this is the problem I think with a lot a lot a lot of the time these days is people people think that they can have the best possible thing without putting their hand in the pocket. Unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. <laughs> you have to pay for like stuff to get the best it, thing. I want a Tesla, but I can't afford one. But I don't go complain to Elon Musk that exactly. Which can, is can, why can, I I, can I rain on the Adobe parade just for? Yeah, like, could you please? Because nobody because, because, because they're not going to let anybody else do that. So go for it. I, I pay. First of all, Hamish never read. Uh, comments on DP review that place is you know it's it's the worst place on the internet Um, (laughs) but Adobe I subscribe to Creative Cloud I've been using Photoshop for like as long as I can remember Um, I I would happily be paying what I continue to pay for that software if it wasn't so goddamn slow and every time they update it it gets slower and slower and slower uh, to the point where it's borderline unusable, and like I, I've been upgrading Photoshop literally for as long as I can remember, and for the first time, I'm I'm ready to dump it because the, I think the software sucks right now. Well, to be uh, fair, I mean, I've purple. got I just bought myself, or we've leased through work, a 64 gig RAM and 8 gig RAM graphics. Uh, with the top end 2.9, whatever it is. I've got a stupidly powerful MacBook Pro and Lightroom is still slow in it. So yeah, I, I'm, I, yeah, I, I, 
I'm not saying they are the best company in the world and that, you know, there are flaws, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, my point is, if you want the best that's available, you've just got to pay the cash. Yeah, and I'm saying I, I would happily pay for Adobe if it wasn't so slow. I mean... Oh, it just it barely works sometimes, you know, and it's like it's the the best software out there. We've been using it for ages. Uh, you get used to the interface, so you don't want to. I don't want to change it, but it's it's got to the point where it is so frustrating that every time that renewal uh, shows up on my credit card, I'm like, really, guys? Um, and and every time, I just want to kind of go back to an old standalone version for purely for the performance reasons. Yeah, that's what I'm running. <laughs> and and I I have no like like you guys are saying this is why I don't complain about the subscription model because I agree exactly with what Hamish said if you want the best you're going to have to pay for it. Oh right? yeah. And I I'm fine with that, but I to me it's unaffordable so I don't use it. So I I'm using standalone, you know, on desktop versions of the software still. And it works fine. And I'm not going to spend a hundred plus dollars a year on it. I don't care how good it is. I don't need that functionality. So I can kind of understand both lines of thinking, but it, ultimately, you know, Hamish's take on it, I think is exactly right. If you want it, pay for it. If you don't mm -hmm. need it, don't pay for it, but don't complain about it. There's a middle, there's a middle road here that that's just, that which is, can I, I think sorry, that, can, can I yeah. interrupt? I actually do need to go now. Okay. My wife is calling me and all sorts of things happening. Um, I've had my little rant. You know, it wouldn't be a podcast with me on it without me on a rant with it, let's face facts. Um, so, yeah, uh, 35 and see all that bollocks. Pixelator um, is now a thing and it will be, you could buy them off my website at the moment, which is www.pixl hyphen latr.com who cares about stupid brand uh, <laughs> ignore the fact that when you type it into the computer the computer is trying to autocorrect you all the time it's very irritating but ignore that because it's fine p-i-x-l hyphen latr.com you can buy it on there um, I'll start shipping is starting tomorrow but I've got 2,107 or something ridiculous of the things to ship so it might take a little bit of time and yeah, also it's quite good. Don't expect it to be the best product because remember it's only forty pounds and it does all of the different different size negatives. It's not flawless. Uh, what else can I say? Uh, we can, yeah, we can we can see you soon, can't we? You can see me soon. Yes, come to the photography show. Um, if we haven't all um, died of coronavirus and or are still able to wipe our asses because the toilet roll hasn't been bought. Um, I will be at the photography show from uh, 10 o'clock on Saturday morning until 5 o'clock on Saturday evening and then the same Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. By the end of Tuesday, I'm going to be moody, so go with coming sooner rather than later. Uh, I will have pixelators. You can buy them from me there and they will be £35 instead of £40 on my website. And that's uh, when you say uh, Saturday, that's Saturday the 14th of March. That's this week, uh, back yes. end of this week, and you're there for four days. And that's the photography show at the NEC in Birmingham in the UK. Yes, and there's, correct. And there's lots of other people there as well, largely because of you. Well, I wouldn't go that far. There's lots of other people there um, that are analogy people um, because I told the photography show that there wasn't enough analog stuff there and they went we totally agree what do we do about it and i said that they should do something and they went that's a great idea let's do that 
I haven't done anything else apart from that. But um, if that, that's what you're alluding to, yes, there is going to be a lot more analog stuff well, there you, than you, usual. You made something happen, and that's and that's a thing, and that's and that's mm. the point you were making earlier about you know where. Uh, people begrudging paying their Nate some money for his software and, and all, all of those things, you know, somebody has actually got to do these things. And if somebody's going to do it and you know, they, they also need to survive and pay mortgages and all, all of those things that we all have to do, then, you know, somebody, you know, somebody has to make the effort and you made the effort for that. It's happening. And I think it's a great, a great thing that you've achieved there. Although yeah, we haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's not going to be anybody there because, as I say, there are, everybody's either going to be are dead or at home unable to wipe their bum. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's the analog spotlight uh, mm-hmm. where there's lot, lots of people getting together at the show. Yes. Uh, and I will be equally or more cynical than I sound at this exact moment in time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Don't expect anything else. No, no. Well, that's that, that's that's brilliant, Hamish. Thank you for uh, for being with us. Um, yeah, and thank no you problem. for the for the two maybe more rants that you've given us as well. Because uh, we we do like a good rant. Um, that's to be done. Uh, I do need to go get my daughter now. My wife's going to yeah. kill me. So uh, yes. Bye. Thanks again, Hamish. And so let's let's close close things down as well. Um, and uh, I've. Perry's have very little to, to say. I don't know if you've got any closing thoughts you might want to uh, say about what you've been listening to there, Perry. No, not not really. I learned a lot. It sounds very complicated. <laughs> I may I may or may not change my behavior. I still don't understand uh, how to do color properly, but uh... we well, don't need to. You just you just uh, scan your scan your negatives, run them, uh, export them as a as a TIFF, um, and then import them into Negative Lab Pro. Job done. That's all you need to do. In Lightroom. In Lightroom, yes. Which if, which I can't it, I can't run on my computer because it's too slow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but apart from yeah. that, no, I want to I want to give Nate my money, but Adobe's stopping me. So take that up with them. <laughs> I, I literally I, I can't I, use Lightroom. Yeah, I, I, I use Photoshop because Lightroom will not work on my computer, and I have <laughs> two. I have a, I have two Macs in my house, um, and it just doesn't work. Well, it does work, but it takes me like if I want to scroll to the next image, I'll scroll to the next image and then, you know, go make a cup of tea, have some lunch, go off a run. I don't actually go off a run, so that's a lie. But go fishing, come back, and maybe it's loaded a preview of the next picture. Right. Fuck. Oh, dear. Sorry. No, no. Well, there you go. There you go. What can you say? I mean, this is a good insight. I may have to go and make a, like, a blog post about Lightroom optimization and how to get it to run faster. Well, I see I've Googled and, and read like everything online that that all the tips, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this. And I've done as much as I can. And it's, it still doesn't get well, I guess sometimes it gets better for like three days and then goes back to goes back to crap. So and I'm not going to buy a new computer every time there's a new update. So screw that. It's frustrating because I love the software um, and I Lightroom as a concept. When they first launched it, I started using it. And I thought, OK, this is kind of cool. But then it was, it became, it got to the point where it was faster for me to do what Lightroom does just manually with Photoshop and, and other stuff. So I don't know, man, it's really frustrating, that company. Well, fing- fingers crossed that, that there might be something that Nate can help you out with. And uh, we've got this little chat room going there as well. So perhaps uh, um, these, these, if Nate's got a few tips that you may not have tried, then perhaps I'll, I'll be worth giving it a go later. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, 
it's so far gone. I because at the, at this point when you have like this many photos and then you get Lightroom up, the beauty of that software, right, is you want it to kind of archive and organize everything, and that's yeah. I don't, if it's possible, then sure, I'll I'll look into it. But I've I've given I gave up on Lightroom years ago. Okay. And, all right. Well, um, on 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 that note, then I'm going to uh, head over to this. We're not obviously we're not going to do emails and then the other bits and bobs that we do at the end of uh, most shows because we've been going on for quite some time. Um, but it's it's been absolutely brilliant having you on, uh, Nate. Um, like I say, I've said it several times. I love your software, um, and I've really enjoyed listening to you explaining. And the, the ethos behind it and, and what actually goes into to, to making such software and also giving us some some absolutely brilliant tips as well um, on you know why things go wrong when when you do digitize uh, using a DSLR or mirrorless and so on and how you, know, you can correct that to make sure you you're keeping your image uh, you're square onto your images and, and so on and so on so uh, um, so yeah thank you very much for being with us Nate yeah, well, listen, it's been a it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And uh, if if anybody wants to to try out Negative Lab Pro, I'll just throw out there that it, uh, there's a free trial, um, so you can try it for twelve shots for free. Uh, it's it's fully functional. It's not putting any kind of uh, any kind of watermark on your images. It just lets you you know use it fully for twelve for for twelve shots, so you can get a full uh, get a good feel of it. And you know, I'd recommend doing that and you know seeing if it seeing if it works for you. Uh, you can get that at uh, negativelabpro.com. And I'd also recommend checking out, um, there's a forum now on on there that is primarily focused on uh, film and film digitization. Uh, that's at forums.negativelabpro.com. And uh, I mean, there's really, really robust conversation happening there about ideal light sources and what to look for. You know whether it's uh, you know whether it's the uh, the CRI rating of it or whether it's the the narrowness of the you know RGB spectral bands. There, it, it, there's people who know way more about this stuff than I do, and they're in this forum talking about it, which is pretty cool. Um, there's also a Facebook group, a private Facebook group, where people share images that they've that they've made with Negative Lab Pro, or if they're having trouble, and uh, you know the images aren't. Uh, aren't looking like they want it to they they'll share a raw and other people will show them hey here are the settings that, that that'll get you a better a better image so it's a really helpful community there's a lot of positivity uh which we try to encourage and uh you can just do a search inside of facebook for negative lab pro users uh or if you download the free trial you'll get an email and it'll include um it'll include the facebook group in there um so yeah it's been it's been uh, a pleasure uh, chatting with you guys and uh, taking taking a little break from uh, from complex algorithms and um, raw processing pipelines. So it's been uh, it's been good, good good chatting with you guys. It's been yeah, you as well. Yeah, it's it just I just remembered yeah. something when when I first started talking to you about coming on the show. Um, you you weren't a father at the time, and now. <laughs> <laughs> now you are, aren't you? Well, well I so I have uh, I have a, a daughter who's uh, three now and oh, uh, okay. a, a newborn, uh, so um, who's now eight months. So you started talking with me maybe about ten months ago yeah. before we had the eight month old. Um, so so yeah. <laughs> so now my 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 office is is also a, a three year old girl's bedroom. <laughs> well, it's it's. it's 
it's great to finally get you get you on the show, and and the delay is is absolutely Hamish's fault. So uh, <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Uh, and actually, are, are there any shout outs you might want to give? I mean, you're giving a load of information about as to how people can um, do do stuff with uh, Negative Lab Pro and find out more about it and where to buy it and trial it. Uh, any any shout outs you might want to give? Um, not that, not that I can think of. Uh, I mean, maybe a sh maybe a shout out uh, to my wife for letting me, letting me, uh, uh, you know, shoot film and, and and do fun things. Excellent, excellent. It's always one of those things that I tend to drop on our guest at the last minute and think, oh, I didn't really have a chance to think about that one. And then as soon as you finish recording, you think about sixteen people that you should have said said hello to. Um, so, uh, Johnny, have uh, have you got any shout outs or anything you have to get off your chest um, this, this week? No, all good. Until next time. And how about you, Perry? Nope. Okay. Well, uh, in the case of Perry, then, um, how can people follow you and keep up with the things that you do? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Flickr at PerryG or at my never updated website, PerryG.com. Okay. And Johnny? Uh, you'll follow me uh, in the Facebook group for this podcast, which is uh, Classic Lenses Podcast. And you can find me uh, in person at Central Camera Company, except for Sunday and Monday. I'm there all other days of the week. Don't shake his hand. Don't shake my hand, please. Stop, <laughs> stop, people. I like you, but stop trying to shake my hand. See, is it fist bumps, or are you doing an elbow touching I, now? Or I'm, I'm doing fist bumps with people. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm doing the because I'm in Chicago, the home of the terrorist fist bump. So. <laughs> And, it's, uh, it's, it's Obama's hometown, so we do it in honor of that great first Muslim president of the United States. <laughs> and uh, um, where, where, if if people are on Instagram, what, what's a what's a good connection with our show on Instagram? Uh, please visit Best Vintage Lens on Instagram because they have pictures every day that are posted on Instagram made with classic lenses, and we also have uh, Ricardo's weekly snarky. <laughs> wrap up of the previous week's episode you got to make sure you read that that is that is must must read activity so make sure you do that as well uh so tag your images with best vintage lens for a chance to get featured on the best vintage lens uh instagram feed uh, also if you want to send an, an email to the podcast here send it to uh classic lenses podcast at gmail.com and of course, visit uh, classiclensespodcast.com for each episode and all the notes that go along with that episode. So make sure you do that as well. Oh, oh, oh. Also, if you want to watch a video of the transcription of the podcast to see the words up on the screen while you listen to the podcast, you can do that on YouTube. So check out uh, Classic Lenses Podcast on YouTube. That's it. And uh, for me, I'm on Twitter as Simon4. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. Um, and what else? What else? I've got an eBay store, which the, uh, the, the link to that will be in the notes. And uh, I've now introduced even more uh, lens caps. I think I'm up to two. My <laughs> range is up to two lens caps that I'm doing. So, uh, so I've got exacto lens caps, and they keep on getting better. And I've done Pentacon Six. I think they they're on there now, and I have a few more in the pipeline as well. So uh, you can find those on my uh, on my eBay store. Um, and that's it. So uh, Nate, thanks. Thank you again for for being with us. It's been great. Hey, my pleasure. 
That's it. And uh, that leaves it finally for me to say uh, our music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. It's called Octo Blues. Um, and that's it for this time. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. And if you can, be like Carl. <laughs>